Welcome to Kurt Vonnegut's podcast dedicated to the life, works, and ongoing things. Kurt Vonnegut, because he is the greatest author of all time. My name is Alex Schmidt, and I'm joined as always by my co-host, Michael Swaim. Which is my name. This one's oh, for you, rhymed. Mr. V. Hey. Oh. As they all have been. <laughs> I wonder who Mr. V is. Yeah, it's a mystery. We'll yeah. find out at the end. <laughs> Stay tuned to the end of the episode <laughs> to find out who Mr. V is. Did you, wait, did you maintain the rabbit when you were like, yeah, it's a mystery? I did. Thank yeah. you for noticing. Right, cool. <laughs> Thank you for noticing. <laughs> <laughs> We are here. <laughs> so far, for so good. A uh, an episode all about the novel Bluebeard, published in 1987. And uh, why don't we get into what happens in the book with a segment called Plot Time? That's the end of the fun. <laughs> I guess I did make it sound that way, right? Like it was a transition from fun to plot. No, what I mean is, I hated this book, Alex. Whoa. Yeah, that's the twist I was alluding to before. This is the first Kurt Vonnegut thing I've ever read that I would say, skip. It sucks. (laughs) I was pretty on board with it. I think a lot of people will disagree very strongly with me. Wow. Hated it. (laughs) <laughs> that's what happens in the book as far as i'm concerned <laughs> that's a, the plot <laughs> a bunch of boring crap right <laughs> a heroic reader has his time sure. wasted for yeah. 300 yes. pages or whatever that's a good that's log line. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you're gonna have to come hard with like explaining the good things about it well yeah let's uh it also it jumps around in time a lot so I what think... <laughs> a Vonnegut a book? Vonnegut? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so let's uh, let's look at the life of the main character. Our main character is I pronounce it Rabo Karabikian. Ditto. Great. And... No, see, that's how you know it's going to be a bad episode because <laughs> every time we've disagreed on oh. pronunciation, it's a good luck. <laughs> right. When we disagree on that, we're in sync. Exactly. So we're not in sync. Oh boy, we're screwed. I don't see what you're getting at. <laughs> Man, we're out of the pocket today. <laughs> <laughs> Different wavelengths. We should just, we'll take our mics to different rooms mm-hmm. and we'll just each talk about it. Mo- monologues on our yeah. own. And so we'll anyway, just cut them together somehow. Rebo Carbetian. <laughs> I saved it. Now it'll be good. Now we're good. What's uh, his deal, Alex? He is an abstract expressionist painter. And this book is centering partly on the world of abstract expressionism, which was an actual movement of painting that started in the 1940s in New York. And it's considered by many to be the first truly American, purely American school of art, and also the movement that made uh, the art world centered on New York rather than Paris. And our main character is a fictional painter in it. There's a couple other fictional painters in it, and then a lot of also real painters like Jackson Pollock, Mark Rothko, and I don't I forget other ones he lists, but there are other famous ones like uh, Kandinsky, Matisse, I think is one. Kandinsky. Yeah. Is I couldn't find out if Terry Kitchen's real, but I because I couldn't find very much information, I'm assuming he's not. I believe he's made up, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think he's the other main made up character. Yeah. Karabikian yeah. himself and his best friend Terry Kitchen are like the Forrest Gumps in this one, insinuated into the real world of abstract expressionism. And yeah. I just want to say, uh first American art form. In the visual medium, right? I just don't oh, want to yes. gloss over jazz and rock and roll and stuff like that. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, for fine art in a visual medium. In painting, medium. yeah, exactly. In painting, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's still jazz and comics. And yes, but it is <laughs> the definitely and, yeah. the thing that made, uh, like you said, Europe was the only important place. And now, as you know, if you're into like 
grotesquely overpriced works of abstract art. I have New, many of yeah. them. No, it's not true. <laughs> New York's the place to buy them nowadays, yeah. Yeah, and yeah, and Paris is older stuff, I guess. Exactly. Still doing fine, but yeah, yeah. they have a pyramid in the Louvre and stuff, but you know. Right, and if you'll harken back to the end of Breakfast of Champions, of course, one of the climactic moments is Rabo Karabiki and this very character yes. explaining to the quote-unquote in that scene, ignorant, like, hick townspeople. Here's why abstract expressionism is, like, I get it. You look at this thing that's just a field of orange with a single blue stripe over it, and you think, why does this cost $800,000? Yeah. I'll explain. <laughs> <laughs> and that was, like, the one of the climactic speeches of Breakfast, and this is that character's whole life story. Yeah. So a lot of the book is also an explanation of why do people pay so much for abstract expressionist art, but right. but also why it is a valid art movement, what it was trying to do. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, and it also... Like you say, it's building out a character who is significant in Breakfast of Champions. He's briefly yes. in it, but he's significant. And so, yet again, Vonnegut betrays the promise of Breakfast <laughs> of Champions to free his characters. He builds an entire book around Karabekian this time, but also, I think, fleshes him out and makes yes. him a thing. And ties, I think, abstract expressionists, like the credo around that art form to America. Like, what is uniquely American about doing yeah. an art form where... The point is to have no direct meaning. Like the piece of art is just what it is. It stands for itself. Yeah. That's a very American thing. He'll say later in the book, nowhere in the world has the number zero had more meaning than in America. And what he <laughs> means by that is the part of the American dream is clean slates starting over. Yeah. Um, the American dream is you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps. It doesn't matter what your past was to a degree. <laughs> um, yeah. And that, that could, uh, Vonnegut plums how that promise is a lie, but I'm saying at least the packaging of America, it, it makes sense that abstract expressionism was born. In America. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it follows uh, his family coming to America. Rabo Karabikian has Armenian parents who survive the Armenian genocide and then come to America, but are sort of robbed and cheated along the way and end up in a town in Northern California. And then from there, Rabo Karabikian gets launched into a life in the art world and also a life in New York City where he first works with an illustrator and then breaks away from that even though he's amazing at the task of illustration. Right. And from there we follow his uh, multiple marriages and his process of building a bunch of art, losing all that art partly because he painted a lot of it with a paint that doesn't last called Satine Duralux. And then when we're following him in the events of the sort of presence of the book, it's a situation where he is working on his autobiography at a house in the Hamptons at the behest of a woman. It's a Nancy Myers movie. Yeah. The but, present tense of oh, this yeah. is just a Nancy Myers movie. It's like rich white dude in a nice beach house yep. and an old woman who's like interesting and hard to deal with comes in and upturns his life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's very the I think the AV Club invented the term manic pixie dream girl. And sure, yeah. it's very that, but also like you say, the old older Both people. Older version. people. Yeah, it's it not reminded me. State. It's it's uh I don't know. Remind me of it's complicated Something's got to give, things yeah. like that. Yeah, stuff it, like that. I'll compare it to As Good As It Gets a lot. Yep. It reminded totally. me of that a lot. Yeah, yeah. yeah. White, white guys over 50 having <laughs> yeah. magic happen to them. Yeah. Right. And like, what a great late-in-life opportunity for me to come out of my shell and learn one lesson. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
so he so he's in this house learning this lesson from this woman and at the same time the house has a and writing his autobiography which and, this right. is yeah yeah which this is he so as he says in. this book becomes a mix between an autobiography and a diary because he alternates pretty much 50 50 with telling his whole life story including his relative's life story in the way that an autobiography would traditionally be yeah and then every other chapter is like also this real-time event of this woman invading my life and changing it is happening in real time, and it seems important even though I'm very old now, so I'm also going to record that as a diary. So every other chapter is literally like, you won't believe what Sears Berman just did, and then back to oh, my parents. I, yeah. I say it's Cersei. Cersei. Good. Yeah. Episode saved again. <laughs> saved. Yeah. Do you yeah. say Beer Man? <laughs> <laughs> beer Man. The ghost of Duff Man. Right. Cersei Beer Man. <laughs> yeah, it turned her into Duff Man and went out immediately. <laughs> yeah. I would read a book where Duff Man revitalizes a, an older man. Totally. That would be great. Oh, yeah. How did your parents die? <laughs> He's like, I just, I just want to die with my abstract expressionist paintings. Abstract expressionism is bullshit. Oh yeah, <laughs> Duff Man paints a lot of things. <laughs> we should just go make that later. Definitely. Um, <laughs> so he, uh, so Carrie Bacon is working on this book, dealing with this woman. There's some other modern day stuff happening, and then also he is living in the very nice home of his uh, second wife who was a wealthy American woman of like a long American line of people. Yeah, his parents got, I think there's a couple, I appreciate the speed with which we're getting through plot time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> But to paint just a couple details because I think they come back as like callbacks to the plot. Yeah, uh, yeah. The mom uh, survived the Armenian genocide by playing dead. She saw a dead old woman who had hidden a bu- her family's like wealth of jewels in her mouth, in her toothless mouth, yeah. but she died. And so very horrifyingly, this like 14-year-old girl waited till all the soldiers left, dug all the diamonds and rubies out of this dead old woman's mouth, I'm sure traumatizing her forever, right. and then uh, met back up with the guy who would eventually become her husband. He hid in the bottom of like a porta potty, so yeah. he didn't actually see any of the brutal murders, but he was covered in shit and piss and heard all the brutal murders. Um, they, of course, go into hiding, survive, like you said. Uh, a guy gets them to America with the promises of riches, but it was all a scam, so yeah. they just become a poor Armenian refugee couple in America. And then the other, like, tidbit about that that's important is we should talk about, like, the specifics of Dan Gregory, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, uh, I guess I'm rushing it, rushing it. But do you think we'll go back? Okay, great. Great, great, great. But it's great to hit that, yeah. But just so you know his name, at least for future reference, Dan Gregory is the very famous artist that he ends up apprenticing with in the middle of his life. Well, and uh, and then one of I think one other key thing about it is his father feels tremendous guilt and shame about how he survived the genocide. And if, right. I guess if people don't know, the Armenian genocide was the Turkish army killing a bunch of Armenians around World War One. Yes, um, and since uh, well, Turkey has done a lot of PR moves over the last yeah. hundred years when, to make then, it not as big a deal as the Holocaust. But for the Armenians, it is uh, on par with the holocaust for them yeah yeah i'm also i'm realizing maybe i should say the ottomans it was probably technically sure i don't remember yeah who what country it technically was oh man we're gonna have some mad turks anyway fun <laughs> uh. <laughs> it's nobody's business but the turks <laughs> so then in like the middle of his life 
or coming of age, I guess. He's with his poor parents, both of whom feel not at home. They feel like refugees. They have survivor's guilt. Yeah. Um, and he just happens to have a talent for drawing. A few teachers say, you, sh- you know, your kid should be an artist. And his parents, as I think refugee parents who are worried about safety and money above all else, will say, don't put ideas like that in his head. That's a terrible job. Like, we're, yeah. sh- we're trying to make him live and thrive in this world. Yeah. Well, and because <laughs> his dad, before they came, was a scholar of Shakespeare and taught English and taught about literature and poetry. And then in his anger and shame, self-punishes upon arriving at America and becomes a cobbler. Because he knows it's shoes. like a stupid menial job that he would hate. Yeah. And he's like, this will be my penance for how things <laughs> for living. Went. And he's also a detached and hard to connect with father, which is painful to his wife and son. Of course. Yeah. But very wry. Says a lot of things about why he's bitter that you're like, yeah, that's, I mean, you got a raw deal. You're not wrong. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But uh, he grows up hating his father for that choice. He's like, I get it that bad shit happened to them. But like my mom, even worse shit happened and she kind of bounced back. And my dad, it seems, chose to be bitter for the rest of his life. Yeah. And didn't care how that would affect his son's outlook on the world. And so he hates him for that. And there's stuff about that in the book. But anyway, the point is, functionally, the, he finally convinces his mom to uh, help let him pursue art when she reads this article about Dan Gregory, the highest paid illustrator in the world at the time. Yeah. I thought he was kind of like the anti-Rockwell. Yes. Or he serves a function in society and his art is described in a way that really reminded me of Rockwell. But I was looking into Rockwell's personal life because I was like, oh, no, does this mean Rockwell's a huge prick? Because Dan Gregory is a huge prick. Spoiler yeah. alert. Monster. No. Like yeah. Rockwell was a fine as far as we know. I was, looking at, I was yeah. also trying to figure out, I can't find any evidence that Vonnegut ever met Rockwell or anything. Or thought he sucked. I think he just <laughs> thought the archetype of incredibly wealthy, famous illustrator of homespun, likable, commercial Earl things. He just thought that was a useful archetype for a villain. But in the process, he kind of drags Norman Rockwell. And yeah, he probably shouldn't have. The guy's fine. It well, yeah. Like. <laughs> but Dan Gregory's art is described in a way that is unmistakably Rockwell. Yeah. Because he's like drawing homespun fables for Reader's Digest type magazines that are photorealistic. And that's what everyone's blown away by. And that's yeah. Norman Rockwell's work. That's exactly. It's yeah, like, and like optimistic and positive. Yeah. And they it. describe it as photorealistic, yet somehow optimistic. And everyone has an interesting like like spirit inside them. You can see the light in their eyes and you're like, that's a Rockwell. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and he's like, but it's a little naive. Maybe it's not like gritty. And you're like, yeah, Norman Rockwell. <laughs> yeah. And, but in actual, and or in the book, Dan Gregory was Dan Gregorian in, I think it was Russia. Yeah. And he had a horrible apprenticeship and training and upbringing where he was forced to spend six months trying to draw an utterly photorealistic picture and it would get torn up and he'd do it again. Well, he was trying to counterfeit a ruble. The guy was was like, you have to draw a ruble that's so good that you go to the market and buy something with it. And the punishment for that if you're caught is death. Yeah. So good luck. <laughs> yeah. And then coming out of this horrible, like very old world experience, comes to New York and becomes a bitter, cruel, unhappy artist who hits ladies. He reminds me very much of uh, what's his name from Happy Birthday Wanda Jim. Oh, if yeah, Harold Norman Ryan. Norman Rockwell, yeah. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that, but yeah, a Harold Ryan figure. S- yeah, same archetype, so you know what we're dealing with. Utter misogynist, utter racist. And violent, yeah. yet somehow creates beautiful art about the opposite of those things. Yeah. 
But like also actual Norman Rockwell, his family had been in America since the 1600s. Like he doesn't even have an immigrant story. It's just and a, a pure... bunch of his paintings have extreme liberal bias in them. Right, like clearly, like he painted things that were pro desegregating the schools before that was a clear cut. So yeah. like he's obviously on the liberal side, if anything. So yeah. don't. <laughs> Just, so it's a weird, yeah. and it's weird. It, it's weird to be in a book where there's so many actual artists in it. So yeah, like, oh, he must be patterning after actual artists, mm-hmm. and then he just <laughs> throws yeah. Norman Rockwell under the bus. Oh anyway. well, but uh, so his mom reads this article saying, "Oh, you can be an illustrator and be successful," and she says, "I'll let you pursue art if you write to Dan Gregorian specifically. Yeah, like if you can become his apprentice, I'll let you do it because that's the money river." Yeah, like, and that's the top artist. Yes, so art is dumb, but if you can get connected to the money river, then I, as your mother, will know you're going to be safe. I can die happy, etc. cetera. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and she does die before the father, um, and he says she dies believing that I was Dan Gregorian's, like, protege. And that's because Dan Gregorian never writes him back, but over the course of the next several years, he strikes up a pen pal ship with Dan Gregorian's like personal secretary and valet, Mary Lee Kemp. Yeah, and yeah. and mistress or and mistress, or something. yes, yeah. yeah. And Mary Lee Kemp used to be a showgirl dancer, something like that, in New York, and was had given that up to go just be the live-in person for Dan Gregory. And I think she's like the daughter of a penniless potato farmer from Iowa. Like she's the yeah. classic, you know, drove to the big city. Like ended up right. auditioned for a few things. It didn't work out. A rich older man is like, I'll take you <laughs> under my wing for sex. And she's like, okay. Right. So she lives in his mansion. She's not very happy with it. He hits and kicks her a lot is a quote from the book. Yep. Um, and treats her like shit. You know, he, she's just there basically to be his girlfriend and like punching bag for him to feel big about himself. <laughs> yeah. And then in a particularly bad cruel episode dan gregory throws her down some stairs and then in penance for that and to try to keep her around he says i'll do whatever you want and Marily kemp says take rabo karabikian on as your apprentice and because so she's come to like him over years of writing him yeah he's like a nice kid that's all yeah and so after years of this correspondence not being something that'll work out for rabo suddenly it does he gets a brief telegram from dan gregory saying come to new york we'll set you up which shocks even him because he kind of suspected he was yeah. only talking with his assistant and can't believe dan gregory actually actually saw his portfolio. And of course, it comes out the reality is Mary Lee had sent him a bunch of Dan Gregory's art supplies because they're like the finest money can buy. So when she finally got uh, Gregory to look at Robbo's portfolio, Gregory immediately realized, you stole my shit and mailed them to this kid. I'm going to push you down the stairs. That was why he did that. Um, Then he said, as abusers so often do, oh, I'm so sorry I pushed you down the stairs. I love you. Anything you want to make it right. Yeah. So now, unbeknownst to him, he is coming into, like, the worst situation. (laughs) Yep. So he, like, leaves California, arrives at Grand Central Station in New York, like, oh, boy, this is going to be the start of my apprenticeship to the greatest artist ever. And no one shows up to meet him because Mary Lee is in the hospital because she was thrown down the stairs. And Dan Gregory literally hates his guts and his explicit plan is to make this as unpleasant as possible for him until he quits. Yeah. <laughs> he doesn't want an apprentice. Yeah. And all, and Dan Gregory's other interests are Italian fascism. He's very excited about Mussolini. He loves Mussolini. And we learn from the narration very early on that Gregory and his assistant, Fred Jones, who is an aviator, they will both die in Italian uniforms in a campaign of Mussolini's. 
Right. So they end life as actual Nazis. Like, they side with the Nazis in World War II and get killed as Nazis in Nazis' uniforms. So yeah. fuck these guys. <laughs> yeah, they're just um, monsters. <laughs> fine people on both sides of that war, as we know. But, uh, but these guys suck. And I think you could tell that from one quote. Like, Dan Gregory is literally like, you know what I like about Mussolini? When someone fucks with him, he makes them drink oil until they shit themselves to death. That's what I respect. Yeah. <laughs> so you're like, geez, dude, geez. <laughs> Uh, and, you know, he says racist shit left and right. He says sexist shit left and right. We're not, we don't yeah. have to, like, say it, but you get it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he also and he has an elaborate studio that he forces Rabo Karabikian to draw photorealistically in it, the same kind mm-hmm. of six months on one drawing and tear it up process that he was put through in training. Right. It takes six months. He does it perfectly. Him. He tears it up and burns it immediately. Just like his guy did to him. And when Rabo's like, why did you do that? What was wrong with it? He's like, I don't know. No soul. Which is like a vague, <laughs> right? So like nothing was wrong with it. I just hate you. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and he also hates the growing movement of abstract expressionism because it's not illustration. And he tells Marilee and Rabo that the one thing they can never do is go to MoMA. They can never go to the Museum of Modern Art. Right, of course. Because, because it's where all that yeah. art lives and it's an insult to what he All that in. stuff is bullshit to him. It's hippie claptrap. Yeah, a painter is only good if they can do what a camera does. Whereas Rabo is slowly realizing that he has a bunch of admiration for this new burgeoning group of artists who are specifically like, you know, the camera was just invented, so soon we'll be obsolete in some sense. Yeah. Although I would argue photorealistic painting always has its place because, like, look at a Turner. You can imbue realistic painting with, Who's with feeling. Uh, he's famous for painting sort of magical auras around photorealistic things. So he would paint like the bay, but also overlay it with an aura of color that represented how it made him feel when he looked at it. Oh, wow. He's awesome. (laughs) J.M.W. Turner? Yeah, he's great. Um, And that's just one example. But my point is there's permutations of photorealism that are still great. Um, But it does lend a special like magicalness to Rabo, and I and I see why, to this group of people who are like, okay, I went to school, I can paint photorealistically, but now there's cameras. Let's rack our brains and be like, what could we do that a camera can't do? Yeah. And just explicitly because of the invention of things like the camera, how can art sustain itself and have something meaningful to say for you to look at that a camera can't do? And Dan Gregory's like, you don't need to do that. Just keep painting like a camera. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, so this is all leading to uh, they get basically Marilee and Rabo get into a bunch of trouble, like you said, because they sort of they fall in love. It's weird. It's not really love, but they they have like a, a fling yeah. and a mutual infatuation based on the fact that they're both oppressed by this asshole and they're the only people who live in the house, which does bond you. Yeah. They're the only people relatively the same age who know each other. And they both secretly like like abstract expressionism. So they go together to MoMA as like a naughty, taboo thing to do. Dan Gregory catches them. They are both immediately, he flies off the handle, yells at them in the street, and yeah. is like, you can't live in my house anymore. <laughs> so they're both exiled from the house. They're just allowed to go home and get their things. They go home, bone for the first time, yeah, because they're so turned on by having been caught and all this shit unraveling. And, and Rabo's <laughs> first time ever. Rabo's de-virginized by Mary Lee. Uh, and then... In a a pretty rough scene, I thought. Um, There's like a miscommunication, I guess. 
<laughs> because Rabo says, like, let's run away together and pursue our relationship now. Marilee, in the heat of the moment, says, that's not what's going to happen. This was a mistake. Let's just pretend it didn't happen and go our separate ways. Yeah. Rabo's heartbroken and is like, okay, I guess I'm not allowed to talk to you. And proceeds to not have any contact with her for 14 years. Meanwhile, she secretly still really liked him and always hoped he would call her someday. Yeah. And hates him more and more and more like <laughs> thinks that he was just using her for his first quick lay and it yeah. meant nothing to him as the years go by yeah and and they uh, discover all this way in the future when rabo ended up on the street but another armenian found him and gave him a suit and work as an advertiser and then later he became a modern artist and then she ended up becoming a countess in Italy who married through marriage who married a count who a gay was, count who she he needed a beard yeah yeah <laughs> and he was also secretly the head of British spying in World War II in Italy so then she was fine because all the Italians got beaten in the war but she was with somebody on the Allies side unbeknownst to her so like her husband died and then they like we we need to tell you he was actually a spy. Now the war is over. Who are you loyal to? And she's like, the winners. And they're like, fine, then we won't put you on trial and you inherit this vast estate. And she's like, great. Good. This worked out well for me. <laughs> um, but to her credit, and I think one of the most important arcs of the book, Mary Lee becomes kind of like a badass Amazonian queen goddess yeah. championing the rights with all her now power and wealth of women who are fucked over by society and by uh, the, like, ravages of the way she sees it, and I'm sure there's some MRAs online who would not see it this way, mm. um, the actions of largely men, or she feels that war, and in particularly the insanity of World War One and Two, come from a masculine place and a masculine energy. Yeah. Uh, I'm not going to call her, like, a man-hater, because she comes off as very reasonable. Yeah. But she has a special interest in protecting women because she finds them especially oppressed, and she's not wrong about that. So she ends up staffing her whole castle specifically with Women who, like, had their arms or legs blown off in the war were paralyzed in the war and have nowhere else to go. So she lives in this cool, like, female-only kingdom that she runs where she just tries to make a safe space for all these women. Let's, uh, let's do what happens with Rabo and the artists and then his final meeting with Marilee. Uh, so right now we have him as, like, a poor artist, but he's friends. He starts becoming friends with the abstract expressionists. He's, you know a poor bohemian artist in New York, except he happens to be wealthy. <laughs> right. So he pays for them going out and drinking and having a good time. Right. So he posits that one of the only real reasons Rothko and uh, Pollock were like close friends of him is because they were so poor and he was like middle class and he could bail them out of situations. Yeah, yeah. And and they also would, along the way, tend to pay him in paintings if they could, rather than exactly. money. And so he ended up amassing one of the greatest collections of art, and especially their kind of art, in the world. Right. And for a brief period in his middle life, he was also a successful abstract expressionist, and he specifically did only the types of paintings we saw in Breakfast, which are giant fields of a single color of paint with one, with like stripes of reflective day-glow tape placed on them artfully. Yeah. So kind of Rothko-esque, but a twist on Rothko was like his signature. And he had a brief period where his paintings were also somewhat profitable and successful. Then as Alex said, it turned out the paint that he favored was actually like terribly manufactured and had to get recalled because it fell apart in like three years. So all his paintings become blank canvases. 
obvious symbol. Yeah. <laughs> um, and like the tape just peels off and the paint just falls off. And yeah. uh, and it's, na- it's yeah. named Satine Duralux and has a slogan about how it'll outlast the smile on the Mona Lisa. Yeah. But it does not. And his most famous painting is in the lobby of a company called Gefco. It's called Windsor Blue Number no. 17 because it's just the paint shade Windsor Blue number 17 on a bunch of canvases. And so it's hanging in their lobby. like an 80-foot canvas. Yeah. It is the kind of abstract expressionism that I think is, there's a place for it, but I don't get why you would spend millions of dollars on it. It is dumb. Right. (laughs) Yeah, like, and of course they do the, well, he does the defense all artists do, where later one of his friends will be like, how can you justify charging this much? And he goes, because I can also do this. And he draws a photorealistic portrait of them immediately. And right. he's like, see, I earned the right to do this, to just paint a big blue canvas. And which, I guess yeah, I don't buy that. From them. Yeah, yeah. I'm, all, I'm still like, then do that. Do the <laughs> thing that looks so awesome. <laughs> Not the stupid thing with the, where yeah. you just roll paint on a thing. <laughs> well, I also like, I th- for me, I think I see the value and the and the function of that kind of art where it's uh, especially that Rothko thing where if you don't know Mark Rothko it's a lot of fields of color and he does layers and layers and layers but it's still just a field of color like I see the function of that and why it's enjoyable but also I don't understand spending a lot of your own money on it you can, you can get that function by just looking at someone else's copy or just getting that uh, experience another way. I think yes, and I, and it does a disservice specifically to experimental painting, and I think that's another point of the book, and Vonnegut's yeah. aware. He says, like, I'm paraphrasing because I don't have it in front of me, but I love this kind of artwork, but there's a problem, which is that we've tied it to monetary value, and the monetary value invites you to take it way too seriously, and if you take it that seriously, you can't help but walk away with thoughts like, my eight-year-old could have done that, or like, yeah. why did you do that? Why is it worth that much? And the point is, it's not worth that much. Like, it's not worth $1 million or $8 million. It's worth whatever the experience you had wa- looking at it is. Yeah, yeah. And it's not the artist's fault that like society is throwing weird amounts of money at it. <laughs> it invites you to like, it invites you to think it's stupid elitist bullshit. And he He's sad about that because he thinks abstract art has a very real value if you didn't pay anything for it and you're just looking at it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, he also, and as he racks up this pile of that art and tries to break into it himself, he is in his first marriage and the marriage comes apart because he is uh, spending too much time and energy on this specific pursuit. Right. It's the classic. His wife is like, you're doing, like, you're ruining our family. We have two boys now. You have to care for the boys. And he's like, I only care about art. So his kids grow up hating him too and explicitly don't speak to him anymore. And his wife left him, married a nice guy who with a stable job who she's very happy with. Yeah. Uh, and he wishes them no ill will. But nevertheless, ironically, uh, of course, we know the history is written. Since he was collecting Pollocks and Rothkos for free and then like just lived 30 years, yeah. he's now sitting on millions and millions and millions of dollars of world famous paintings. So right. he's set for life. Um, and if his wife had like stuck it out, they all would have been set for life. But it didn't work out that way. Life shakes out how it shakes out. Um, and then, I, of course, like doubly ironically, but it seems to be a trend in Vonnegut books, he's already fabulously wealthy or well-to-do. And then he ends up like crashing in the potato barn of this rich lady who owns this mansion. Yeah. Her husband dies by chance. She's lonely. She says, why don't you just move into the mansion and marry me? 
and we'll have a non-sexual marriage. And he's like, okay. Then she dies shortly thereafter. So he also inherits a massive mansion <laughs> yeah. on the East Coast with like private beachfront property. Yeah. yeah. Well, her name is Edith Taft and she's the grandniece of the president Taft yes. um, from an incredibly wealthy old American family. But I do think it's super important to note that both he and Marilee inherit vast estates and Marilee uses hers to do concrete good in the world. Right. And he lives alone in his meditating about how his own life could have been more or less meaningful. Right. Which I do think, he, I think he's pretty self-centered. Yeah, so too. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So he, so he's living in this house and he's got a cook who ha- also has a daughter named Celeste and the cook is unnamed for a lot of the book until very late in the process. Her name's Allison. But that's important yeah. because she's going to quit and he says, please don't because I can't cook for myself. I'm pathetic. Right. And she's like, uh, I'll stay if you can answer a question. What's the question? What's my name? <laughs> <laughs> so that's why they don't give you a name for yeah, a long he's time. He's like, ah. ah yeah, very royal Tannenbaums. But it's <laughs> Alice. For the record, it's Allison. For the record. And he, uh, he also has his friend Paul Slazinger around. He's known him for a lot of years. And Slazinger is a mostly failed author. He's just a depressed, old, broken-down writer yeah, friend. Who yeah. matches him in personality. So yeah, sense. they both yeah. lost an eye in the war. So they right. like to sit around. They, you know, he's his friend because they have a lot in common. But he ma- he makes a point of saying, like, he's really negative. I don't really, like, like him, but he's my best friend. <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's all, and that's as we're saying, Karabikian served in World War II in a specifically all-artist unit that specialized in camouflage. So that was his right. job in the war, was Which doing he can, art. Yeah, he convinced yeah. his general to form that unit. Yeah. So he actually like manipulated his way into a very safe, lucrative army job, uh, which gives him a moderate amount of survivor's guilt because he's just like, I really did skate by very easily. <laughs> yeah. He, he lost his eye in like a freak accident, but it wasn't a big deal. He doesn't remember any pain. Yeah, they very cleanly fixed it, fixed him up. He never had to murder any kids, and yeah. uh, he painted camouflage for the war. That's all he did. <laughs> that was it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and racked up a bunch of paintings semi-illegally. Like he never he makes a point of saying, I didn't go through German castles and loot paintings that I knew were valuable. But if I did see a poor refugee selling a painting and I'm like, I'm pretty sure that's a Matisse, I'll give you a good price for it. But then, you know, years later I'm selling it for millions of dollars. So Yeah, just like it's another solid way. Investing. Yeah, solid investment. <laughs> And he, uh, the very beginning of the order of the book is he's saying, this woman, Cersei Berman, has rolled into my life and she's upsetting the whole apple cart of me being sad and alone. And so now I'm writing my autobiography at her encouragement. Also, they'll find out later that Cersei is actually an incredibly successful author. Hiding her identity for a little while yeah, in the book, yeah. Who's kind of researching the area. And uh, this later breaks Paul Slazinger's heart because it turns out this lady is way better at writing than he is. Right. And as you'd expect, she's like, I mean, she's a Kathy Bates type character. She's like really brassy, no nonsense, says abstract expressionism's bullshit, but she's not an asshole in the way Dan Gregory is. She's a super concrete realist. She just thinks, what's the point of of making art if you're not communicating? All the books she writes are very clear and direct. They're like human stories, like here's what it's like to be a refugee on the streets in India. I learned by going there and researching and interviewing a bunch of people. I put it in a pleasing order. I released it. It came 
came out on bookstores everywhere, including the grocery store. It's a number one bestseller, and the movie's coming out next summer. So she's like a competent but very straightforward commercial author, which, of course, Paul Slazinger, who is like an abstract expressionist, like writer who's always failed because he writes wild shit. Yeah. Uh, when he finds out she's secretly Polly Madison, he's like, well, I'll, I should just kill myself then. Like, <laughs> fuck this world. Yeah. And he obsessively reads all her books and is like, you know what, Robbo? They're pretty good. Like, I'm I'm utterly humiliated and crushed because <laughs> I thought she was dumb. Like, he's been yeah, lecturing her on writing Yeah, as like she's a dumb housefrau and then finds out she's like Stephen King, basically. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and yeah, then the, the other big thing going on at that house and potato barn is that before the time that Robbo's writing his autobiography, he painted a final work and locked it up in the potato barn and completely shut off the whole thing from everyone. And he said, ah, people can see it after I die, but that's it. It's a huge mystery. You've actually mildly spoiled it by revealing it's a painting. Not that we won't spoil oh, yeah, it. True, but yeah. I just, people yeah. should know that, yeah, the key mystery in the book is also uh, the there's something in the potato barn that people will only see when he dies. And yeah. of course, you, like everyone, I'm like, well, that's the punchline. I wonder what it will be. And this, this is the second Vonnegut book in a row, but I think also the second, basically the second one yet where there is a central mystery. Because Galapagos, there was a mystery of who the narrator is. And now this one, there is a mystery of what's in what's in the box, yeah. but it's a potato burn. And it's so ex- it's such an explicit mystery that it even gives you coy clues, which I like. Yeah. It's bigger than a bread box, but smaller than Jupiter. At one point, he does reveal, okay, it's a painting. But right. he says, but it's right. not some dumb joke like one of my blank canvases. It's not a painting of potatoes. It's not a broken paintbrush or some self-serving bullshit. Just wait and see. You'll see. <laughs> and of course we will. Yeah. Um, and, and but also before the, then. <laughs> well, and the title of the book, Bluebeard, is a reference to an actual fable called Bluebeard about a guy known as Bluebeard who has a secret room in his house that he keeps walling up wife after wife in because he keeps working through wives and killing them. Specifically child brides. Yeah. So the uh, I was going to bring this up in the meat, but I'll, we'll explain it now and then I'll bring up the connections in the meat. Sure. But the title, yeah, Bluebeard, is uh, he would have child brides murder them and then bury the like hide the bodies in just a body room and every new bride he'd say you can do anything you want just don't look in this one room and every time they would he'd have to murder them because now they know that he murders a bunch of children yeah um and that's just the story it's like a Grimm's fairy tale that was just supposed to be a creepy story you know 200 years ago um and the only connection now i'll pull out more connections in the meat which is why i'm getting into the details but yeah on the surface, the reason the book's called that is because he, too, has a room you're not supposed to look in. That's yeah. all. Yeah, yeah. Um, so Circe, or Circe, of course, or Churchy, um, <laughs> obviously, <laughs> she's really bossy, so all she wants to do is look in the potato barn. She asks all the time. They have funny fights about how, no, I'll never let you look in the potato barn. Yeah. She does all the cl- classic Nancy Myers stuff you'd expect her to do. All the moves. She tricks him into leaving his house on a trip and then redecorates his house. Right. And she replaces all his million-dollar abstract expressionist paintings by Rothko and Pollock with reprints of chromos of little Victorian girls on <laughs> swings, which is what she collects. Yeah. And I love that because it's like... So weird. Right. It's like a... It's the most insulting opposite of art. Oh, I took down all your paintings and replaced them with Thomas Kincaid and Hello Kitty posters. Isn't it nicer in here? <laughs> Didn't I right. cheer the place up? And you're like, <laughs> you don't understand. This is my life is art. You're like, this is an insult to me. 
Um, so mm-hmm. he freaks out. They have a quote unquote comical scene where he forgets that it, he gets so upset that he arches his eyebrows so hard that his eye patch pops off. Yeah, <laughs> and he's so upset he, he like he forgets that everyone can see his gross eye socket, which he's never allowed anyone to see. These are the things that he's mining for humor in this book. Like this is the charming scene. Yeah. Yeah, that that bit ran up weird. Yeah. I think it's all weird because this one's trying so hard to be a light romantic comedy and the comedy parts are really weird. Like they hit weird to me. I actually, I overall didn't feel like it was a romantic comedy mainly, but maybe he tried to and he failed and I just focused on other stuff. Maybe I hate it so much because that's what I felt it was trying to be and it was a really bad fit. Like I kept trying to compare it to As Good As It Gets and As Good As It Gets is a much better version of of the A story than this. Yeah. But you're right. It's more than a rom-com because it goes into the history and the history is all very not rom-com at all. It's very Vonnegut and very like dramatic and there's a lot of artist struggle too sure uh, yeah and it's a treatise on art but i'm just saying the present tense a plot is a rich old crotchety dude an older woman but still younger than him moves in redecorates his place and then he's like you're wacky but it softened me up and that yeah. just seems like light fair for vonnegut to me that's it all. is weird yeah it's a weird <laughs> slazinger has a nervous breakdown goes to an insane asylum says i'll never be your friend again then geep forgives him and comes back and moves in because he has nowhere else to go right who cares that sea arc is done um <laughs> the cook allison uh is gonna quit and then sears convinces or seriously convinces her to stay that's the end of that arc you wrap up the a arc <laughs> yeah yeah um rabo's ostensible greatest work was windsor blue number 17 which was eight canvases with just the paint on it and as we said the paint just peels off of them in strips so his greatest work very publicly fell apart in the lobby of a major corporation in new york he has built his final work in the barn by taking these eight canvases, stretching them out, priming them, getting them absolutely ready and spotless for someone to paint them. And then initially that was going to be it. He had told his second wife that uh, the work would just be that. It would be titled, I tried and failed and cleaned up afterwards, so it's your turn now. That would be the piece. And Edith was supposed to tell people after opening the barn, after he died, that that was the deal. But his second wife, Edith, died first. And Mm -hmm. so after that happened, Rabo said, I, this isn't, this doesn't feel right. This doesn't feel complete. Also, no one will be here to tell anyone what it is. It'll just be a bunch of blank canvases. And so he, after she died, immediately goes and gets new painting supplies. He hasn't painted in years. And he says, I'm just going to go for it. And then he paints everything he saw in one specific moment of World War II after the war ended and, and once Holocaust victims were being released and refugees were being released. And then he also painted in everyone from his life and did an incredible, massive, completely photorealistic painting of uh, basically trying to capture the entire world, I guess you'd call it. War, at least. Yeah, yeah. it's it's when, when uh, peace was declared, or at least like ceasefire. Yeah. Everyone from every side ended up wandering into this big open valley. Yeah. And so he was like, it was just an interesting moment because you could see the Germans over there. They certainly weren't approaching us, but they weren't shooting at us. You could see dead people littering the field, but you could see refugees blinking in the sunlight and being like, what now? You could see generals going around trying to figure out, okay, who's with me, who's against me? Let's round people up. What direction are we headed in? You had this big waiting room area that was just 
just this beautiful sunrise over a valley, but yeah. in it was every major character, at least representatives of every part of this horrible conflict that had just happened and was now over. And what is the world going to be tomorrow? What's next? Yeah. This big, so he paints a beautiful photorealistic 80-foot painting of that scene, and he has... Very importantly, I think, he has a story for every figure. There's like 2,000 figures in it, including himself is in there. Yeah. And he's like, and everyone I can tell you like why they're there, what they're thinking, what happened to them in the war. Um, so it's this massive like Where's Waldo? Great painting that is <laughs> – It is very Where's Waldo, yeah. <laughs> that is not abstract expressionist at all. Right. And I think it is mildly implied that Circe's existence or intrusion into his life – helped him land there. Like, he might, he wouldn't necessarily have painted that exact thing unless she was in his life. Because yeah. one of the things he includes in the painting is his mom as a little girl digging jewels out of an old dead woman's mouth. And that is explicitly a painting that Circe said he should paint someday. Like, one of the first things... The first yeah, thing she... Right. Ha- yeah. yeah. To set up that she's a manic pixie dream girl, the first thing she says to him when they meet is, hey, hi, nice to meet you. How did your parents die? Because yeah. she thinks that's an interesting conversation starter. He explains how they died, but then it leads to, but my mom lived by... And she's like, that's what you should paint, not all this bullshit that's like squares and tape. Yeah. <laughs> um, so by the end, he does. He took her advice. He paints that among many, many other things. And the title changes, right? Yeah, because <laughs> uh, also, for one thing, it's a painting where depending on where you're standing, just because it's so physically large, your perspective changes quite a bit. Like when you're at the side of it, it looks like a field of jewels and colors, sort of. And then as you move to the middle, you can see everyone. And yeah, I think he's trying to make the point that it still is abstract expressionism, if you want it to be. A photorealistic painting, if viewed from an oblique angle, is an abstract expressionist experience, and you can still oh, appreciate it as cool. such. Yeah, like, cool, cool. I yeah. hadn't thought of that. If you only ever saw that painting from the side, you could still think that was a dope painting of random field of colors, and right. you're not wrong. Yeah, it's right. whatever it's you want what it, it to be when you see it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, and also the way the field of people is structured, there's one corner off to the side where the women are, and they're hiding from everything going on up above them. And the new title of the painting is, Now It's the Women's Turn. And it's a clear influence from many people, but especially Marilee Kemp, of the overall view of history and also people's lives on the earth we live on, where it is an overall ongoing process of men cruelly using up women. And he argues that after everything he's seen and, and everything he's experienced and also the way the world has moved, he see, uh, Rabo now sees it as, okay, it's the women's turn to have a world. The painting and book could have been titled The Future is Female. It's, yeah. It's that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's he arrives at, which I do think is one of the redeeming aspects of the book. Uh, he arrives at the point that, for better or worse, let's see what like a female energy running the world would be like. It might be less brutality. Let's see at least. Yeah. <laughs> That's like where he ends up. Yeah. And if, even if it's just as bad, at least we'll know. Right? You know? <laughs> right, like exactly. why not at this point? Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I think it's very notable, obviously, that he decided to change his death plan from like what encapsulates my life is a blank canvas that all the paint fell off of so my life has been an effort in futility i the only thing i can claim is at least i didn't hurt anyone like i ended at a blank spot and my statement is about myself yeah then by the end he says that's not right I've opened my eyes and I realized the painting needs to be about all the human stories and all the people connected to me and outside me and all these real things about the world, and I need to really say something. So I do think, 
like, you know, as you'd expect, these experiences with this woman and meeting Mary Lee back at her castle and seeing her staff and being shamed by her. Yeah. Um, it's basically like the end of that Kendrick Lamar song where he meets that girl again. She's like, N-word, you ain't shit. Uh, because he goes back to Mary like Lee. Like Shireen in, in the Kendrick album? Exactly. Or, yeah, yeah. He goes back to uh, Mary Lee's castle and is like, holy shit, you're doing all this great shit. You're dis- you're the largest distributor of Sony products in Europe. And you're... <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's <laughs> incidentally. <laughs> and you're running this whole castle that's like doing this amazing charity work, but it's yeah. not a handout. You're working with these women to give them new lives. She's like, yeah, and you never even called me back. You ain't shit. You're, you really suck. Yeah. And he's like, okay, great. Well, thanks for calling me in for this meeting. I feel like shit now. <laughs> <laughs> and he accepts her criticism. And I think through that experience and meeting Cirs, a.k.a. Polly Madison, he goes, you know, they're kind of right. Men ain't shit and I ain't shit. And, uh, <laughs> and I'm going to make the painting about that. So yeah. they help him become one step less self-centered. Yeah. Which yeah. is great. That's his growth. <laughs> well, and, and also in the process of making this painting, throughout his life, he had struggled with whether his ability to do purely representational drawing as a craft was worth anything. And he, I think by the end of making this painting, decides that, hey, I am capable of documenting. Like, that is something I know how to do. It may not have soul. It may not be true art. But I can document, and now I have done it, and it can mean what it's going to mean to you. And he's like, or it may not... that's what I've got. It may not push the boundaries in a way that is genius that truly blows me away. Like, my friend Terry Kitchen did things that I'm like, I want to be able to do that. But hey, you know what? If I can't... (laughs) What can I do? I can draw really well. Like, that's yeah. not nothing. So he's, <laughs> he comes back to realizing that his ability to draw things well is not worthless. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Uh, and and also not worth throwing out if you've got exactly, it. Exactly, yeah. Like, yeah. And so he shows all of this to Cersei. She's blown away by it. Before, right. Of course, the punchline is she's the only person. He goes, fine, I relent. And he shows Cersei the painting. And she's yeah. very deeply moved, of course. Yeah, yeah. And then they walk back through the dark to his house. and uh, he, Oh, and he says, like, and now we're real friends or whatever. You know, yeah, you know the kind of scene real, we're saying. Yeah. It's a real important moment for both of them. And it's the kind of moment where without saying it, they're like, we're bonded forever now. We both realize that we've impacted each other's lives. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, it's also, and I, I think I like that it, it's explicit in it that they will never have sex. They will never be romantic with each other. It's I'll get purely... to that in Vana what. Oh, all right. I have yeah. a different interpretation. <laughs> um, but uh, well, they, I like that it stated that there's a very, very deep emotional connection between them yes. that they achieve, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from there, they it that's pretty much the ending. There's just a nice coda of Rabo saying to himself, "My soul didn't know what kind of picture to paint, but my meat sure did." And then Cersei teaches him a just little mantra, I guess, to say to thank his meat for doing something which is hold your hand out in front of your eyes and look at these strange and clever animals with love and gratitude and tell them out loud thank you meat and rabo says so i did oh happy meat oh happy soul oh happy rabo Karabikian. and then end a book yeah that's it so i guess yeah that's a cool little well you have to learn to love yourself it's obviously an echo of the survi- overcoming survivor's guilt yeah. And he says earlier in the book, one of my favorite Vonnegut quotes, I know my meat is doing dumb things and I try to get it. My soul wants it to stop, but my meat just keeps doing dumb, bad things. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, that's true. We're largely instinctive and you have to embrace that as well. Like what your body does of its own accord is important too. Your instincts are, you can't just hate yourself for what you are. Let yourself be whatever you are. 
This is not advice yeah. for you serial killers out there, but <laughs> but he right. learns to embrace. He's like, I didn't need to reject the core of myself just because I was like, being good at drawing, that's bullshit. I want to be Rothko. And, you know, that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's worth a thing. Also, our serial killer listeners, go be a Dexter or whatever, I guess. I don't know. Figure guess, it out. Yeah. <laughs> do that TV show. Or our fa- my favorite sketch that we never had the budget to do, Lester, the molester that only molests molesters. <laughs> I think someone should be out there, right? Finding creepy uncles and molesting them in a I, room filled with saran wrap and be like, see, see how it feels? Fiddle, fiddle, fiddle. You don't like that, do you? Fiddle, oh, fiddle. <laughs> I think you just like the rhyming nature of the title. Quite well, what I wanted was a perfect recreation of the Dexter intro thing, but oh. where it's close-ups of mundane breakfast shit, but it looks sexual instead of violent, <laughs> which would be a great challenge for a director. That yeah, would be fun to, to work yeah. on. Abe was excited to do it, but it's high budget. Yeah. One sausage, two egg kind of thing. Exactly, yeah, right. but you need to run into red and have super slow-mo, so it never <laughs> made it out. And now it's not timely, so... <laughs> yeah, yeah. R.I.P. The Show Dexter. Exactly. And that's the plot of the book. We, I think we, we summed up a pretty jumpy book. Let's get into the choice bits of it in a segment called Kurt Blurt. Mm. Ooh, those Blurt. choice tasty bits. Yeah. Beer fed and massaged num, num. throughout their lives. Num, 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 num. <laughs> Is that, that's Kobe beef, right? That's how they do that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 supposedly. <laughs> I don't know how accurate that is, but yeah, the legend is Kobe beef has perfect marbling because they get beer and massages. This is a segment, if you've never heard the show, where we pick up particularly choice lines that a plot summary wouldn't pick up. Or not even a plot summary, a plot exploration. Sure. But uh, this one had, I thought this one had a pretty good amount of blurts and especially one of the best pre the story happening lines uh, uh book opens with an author's note where vonnegut lays out the key things uh, and then also after that there's one line before the first chapter which is we are here to help each other get through this thing whatever it is dr mark vonnegut md letter to the author 1985 but that's one of the biggest uh, vonnegut lines of all time even though it's his son and he's repeating it it's a quote from his son yeah yeah and it reminds me of Seriously, and I know it's it sounds hokey if you just say it, but there's a Frank Zappa lyric that is basically the same ethos that yeah. I heard when I was little, and I was like, that's my Bible. I'm going to live oh. by that quote. It's Oh, I was going to ask, don't we have a working theory that Frank Zappa is influenced by Kurt Vonnegut? I think he's come up at least once where we're like, ah, that lines up. Or at the very least, like, they both arrived at the same philosophy of secular humanism, yeah. Yeah. And uh, the line is, do what you want to, do what you will, just don't mess up your neighbor's thrill. And if you can, kindly leave a little tip for the next poor sucker on this one-way trip. And I'm like, that's all you need to know. That's the golden rule, man. Yeah, it's uh, surprisingly quick. You know? <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. that's all of life. There that's, we go. That's all you got to do. Yeah. <laughs> I w- yeah, so he redeems himself. Look, Vonnegut's one of the greatest thinkers and writers that the humans have produced. Yeah. So even though I hate this book and I think you could <laughs> skip it and my what's are going to be harsh on oh, yeah, this yeah. one there's still a bunch of great lines of course yeah. there are because he's great it's loaded so i have uh let me off this hellish time machine predating the jetsons <laughs> let me off this hellish <laughs> time machine but he says it in reference to the idea that humans are the only species on earth that can remember the pain of past failures and project depressing visions of the future a common refrain in vonnegut why can't i just be a bird saying pooty wheat in the present moment yeah. appreciating the beauty of the universe. And if I get killed, I just die. Why do I have to be aware I'm going to die and remember all my loved ones who are gone? Let yeah. me off this time machine that's in my brain. Yeah. Oh, that's such a good line. Yeah. Yeah. 
there's one there's one another one really early on where he's describing the Armenian genocide and the setting that led to it and the line is it was an age of empires so is this one not all that well disguised great line yeah uh his dad says about Vartan Mamagonian the guy that scammed them uh to get them to America never trust a survivor until you find out what he did to stay alive <laughs> Yeah. Just really good street wisdom from the dad is like, look, we were both victims of the Armenian genocide, but he survived by working with the Germans. So if I had looked into that, I might have realized, don't trust this dude. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's such a good one. And that character, too, that's a particularly choice representation of uh, a lot of the like promise and reality of coming to America, just that guy being along the way where his because uh, Rabo's parents had jewels and a little bit of other wealth that would have met, made them very nicely set up in America when they arrived. If they hadn't got scammed yeah, out of them. But yeah. instead they got scammed and were struggling. And, right. And, and in stuff. a nutshell, it's that classic wartime or like tragic plot of the human instinct is to do anything to survive, but... It's not worth it after a point. Like, don't murder eight babies to survive. You know, so like, yeah. So like, if someone survived, find out if what they did was worth it, or if they're horrible. Because <laughs> yeah, if they made the choice that, that they made at the end of Mash, then maybe they shouldn't have survived. Do you know that classic? Uh, I haven't seen much. Of ah, that. check it out. You could just, if you want to cry real quick, just mm. check out Alan Alda's final monologue at the end of Mash about the baby murder. It's pretty okay. hard to take. <laughs> yeah, I think actually, I when I took piano lessons as a kid, I learned the theme to Mash because it's a beautiful mm-hmm. song. But I there I wasn't singing it or anything, so I didn't know the lyrics. And then I looked them up later, and I was like, "Oh, this show sounds depressing. This is it's uh, a <laughs> weird mix of maudlin and depressing." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> great. Show. But I mean, Alan Alda rules. Right, like just watching him act is, is a pleasure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, okay, on survivor syndrome also, Sears says, everybody who's alive is a survivor and everybody who's dead isn't, so everybody alive must have survivor syndrome. And I want to connect that to Slazinger, who says a thing Vonnegut has said before, which is the primary experience of being human is the emotion we call embarrassment, like for being alive. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which is a great, uh, he should he should refrain that even more. That's such yeah. a good thing. Yeah. Oh, also, I think it's also really important to point out about the Victorian girl chromos that seem like the epitome of bullshit art that you would buy at the mall. Sears is able to explain to him in a way that get, that he gets why they are meaningful to her. So I think it's very important to note that his bottom line point is art is a verb. Art is whatever you take from the thing you're looking at or experiencing. Yeah. If you think it's trash, then that's how you perceived it. And even though Rabo thinks a big blank field is awesome and that a picture of a Victorian girl on a swing is the epitome of like vapid shallowness, Sears thinks a big blank thing is the epitome of vapid shallowness. And these pictures of Victorian girls on the swings are the epitome of the tragedy of living in an age where everyone knew that death and disease were so rampant that you just wanted to capture one nice moment of clean childhood. Yeah, and he, yeah. he's like, "Oh, that is meaningful. You got me there. You got <laughs> meaning out of this stupid poster of a girl on a swing. Well done." Yeah, well, and yeah, and that's so crucial to Vonnegut's, but not just all the art in this book, but also I think this book is quite a bit about whether Kurt Vonnegut's books are art. It would be a bad book if it was only about that. Yeah, but it's that's in there, and that's such a statement in favor of yes his works art and people get things out of it anything's art if someone yeah. gets something out of it the people who like big bang theory more power to them you know like you can't look yeah. down on them 
<laughs> if it makes them laugh, <laughs> we're just here to help each yeah. other get through this, whatever it is. <laughs> I, actually, I enjoy that show, actually. That's pretty... <sighs> well, that's the end of the podcast. <laughs> Join us next week for Silence. <laughs> oh, no. It doesn't sound like a good show. Nope. Yeah, better than Why Young Sheldon, about... though. I would listen to a podcast full of silence every week. I haven't seen Young Sheldon. Rather than watch Young happening? Sheldon. <laughs> <laughs> I've only seen one billion billboards for it in L.A. It's a, well, the big thing that's going around now is there's some clips of it you can watch online and it's going to be multicam and, or it's going to be single cam instead of multicam, which for layman basically just means, you know, it'll be like Arrested Development or Curb Your Enthusiasm, not Seinfeld or Big Bang Theory. The point being, no audience, no laugh track. And if you watch the clips with no laugh track. You're like, oh, I was only laughing at Big Bang Theory because oh, because the laugh track tricked me into laughing. <laughs> that was very bold of them to switch formats. Yeah, yeah. That's, wow, okay. All well. right, let's blurt. <laughs> <laughs> you were talking about perception before being, I think that's a really key thing in this book. Sure. There's a great, great line where Rabo is talking about what New York was like in the past and also the present he says in new york in 1932 which is the middle of the great depression was like new york in 1987 and the quote is all that has changed in my opinion is that thanks to television we can hide a great depression we may even be hiding a third world war awesome yeah well yeah we're in a constant state of police action but haven't been in a quote-unquote war for many years. It's weird. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we'll have stuff like the Reagan era savings and loan crisis happen, mm-hmm. but or or even uh, what's covered in the movie The Big Short right, about today with the housing bubble. But it feels like only the people it's affecting know about it, you know. Yeah. Or we'll be at war in Iraq and Afghanistan, and nobody in our day-to-day life feels like there's a war. Yeah, know? we call it boots on the ground or whatever euphemism. Yeah. Uh, similarly, about but a few years earlier, he says, although in 1928. The stock market never seemed to do anything but go up and up and up, just like the one we have today. Whoopee! (laughs) I mean, that's a great quote. And it's sad that you're like, that's true even today. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Yeah, because I I don't know if it's Vonnegut's skill or just history lining up, but there's a lot of things in this that feel Reagan-specific, and maybe he didn't like Reagan, but it's all true today, too. It's true today. It's it's very universalized, whether it's Vonnegut's skill or time lining up. Well, because he's truly making very good, truthful observations about how human organizations work. So they're bound to remain true, at least for centuries to come. That's true. You know, we could evolve out of all these behavior patterns, but it's going to take thousands of years. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, even even when it does get kind of specific in this, it's still pretty broadly American. Like, yes. It's still pretty across the board. And as he blurts in this very book, we are doomed to repeat the past no matter what. That is what it is to be alive. <laughs> <laughs> oh, speaking of being alive, there's um, we haven't talked about Terry Kitchen much. Terry Kitchen is the fictional other abstract expressionist who's a very, very close friend of Robert Karabikian. In the book Kitchen struggles deeply with making artwork for him and then dramatically discovers a spray painting rig out on Long Island and starts using that in his heart and falls in love with it. And then he'll commit suicide because of bad chemicals. Yeah, becomes an incredibly famous abstract expressionist and his signature is that he uses spray before he found that. And that's an interesting note, like some artists have an affinity with a technology. He's like, before that technology was invented, he seemed to be banging his head against the wall trying to be a painter. Then the day he picked up that spray rig, he's like, oh, this is my thing yeah and he's like so that's interesting later he would get so upset and depressed that he would take a shot at his dad with a pistol and he would hit his dad in the shoulder think he killed his dad and shoot himself in the head 
like in a heat immediately. Yeah. Like he was trying to shoot a warning shot because he was mad at his dad, saw that his dad crumpled to the ground and immediately was so overwrought that he just blew his brains out, which is just like brutal. It's brutal. And it's like Vonnegut can't get, can't have a protagonist who doesn't have someone close to them who killed themselves yeah. because he yeah. did. And it seems like I, maybe he can't even imagine a life where you don't have some connection to suicide. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Or it's such a big theme in his life. He at least wants it in there. It makes sense, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, and and it particularly fits this thing of like artistic struggle and struggle for meaning. If it goes horribly, horribly poorly enough, along with bad chemicals, it, you know. And fits this blurt: the yeah. most pervasive American disease is loneliness, and even the best people, even people at the top, often suffer from it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Terry Kitchen found the thing that fulfilled him artistically, but it didn't stop him from shooting himself because of his bad chemicals. Yeah, you never know line, who's sad inside. <laughs> and that line is very slapstick too, like that core part of slapstick about how we all need those families, and Absolutely. it comes up a lot. Yeah, extended families is mentioned ad nauseum in this book, as in every Vonnegut book. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and Terry Kitchen, he also gets used to get across. I think a really really fascinating concept in this book, which is the idea of a non epiphany. Rabo off of talking about his what he calls his only sexual masterpiece, which is the time he made love to Marilee Kemp after they got yelled at at MoMA. Terry, he goes on to say that Terry Kitchen talked about how the key to life isn't finding epiphanies where you meet God. And the quote from Kitchen is, the trouble with God isn't that he so seldom makes himself known to us. The trouble with God is exactly the opposite. He's holding you and me and everybody else by the scruff of the neck practically constantly. And so Kitchen describes the really amazing moments in life as non-epiphanies where you actually let go of thinking so hard. And Kitchen says that his only ones were after sex and after taking heroin, <laughs> which yeah. we don't recommend. But I do. Well, Neither the, thing. I Never do them. All you serial killers out there. Uh, overdose on heroin instead. Yeah, I recommend it for you. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> and uh, all those who dabbled, listen to Crack Gets Personal's episode about struggling with addiction. Yeah, gave a very, lot of good advice good on how to not be on heroin anymore if it's time for you to get off. Yeah, for real. Um, and the time is now. Oh, get for off, real. Get off. And it's a great, great show that yeah. I'll happily plug for time, long time to Their come. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think that's a total. Uh, like wave to again Zen meditation kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. He's saying like uh, people think their life will get better when they can finally have the right thought about why their life is wrong or how to make it better. And he's like, mm, not thinking is the way to make your life better. Most in most contexts. Yeah, yeah. Most people are thinking too much most of the time. Well, yeah, and, and and also I think it's exciting to not frame life as God is unknowable. How would I ever understand meaning? It's more exciting to realize there's waves of meaning that you're set. Like the thing is just to chill out some of the time. Just be too. your animal self who's yeah. just experiencing information as it floods into your senses for a while. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, life itself can be sacramental, a blurt on the same line, I think. The point. Oh, yeah. yeah. Abstract expressionism does not require you to have a conscious thought that makes you understand the meaning of the thing you're looking at to feel moved or appreciate it. Life is abstract expressionism. Yeah, Life yeah, is yeah. not representative. Life is a bunch of things that manifest in a way that seems very representative and concrete. But you know and I know that when you dig into your life, it starts to become impossibly complicated and contradictory. And so he's saying, but that's okay. Look at your life as a piece of abstract art and appreciate it for whatever it is. Actually, kind of off of that, Ian, there's a part where Rabo is talking about having a salary and a place to live in Dan Gregory's setup, but not loving it, you know. 
but he rolls with it because there are tangible, concrete benefits to being set up like that. And the quote is, what a fool I would have been to let self-respect interfere with my happiness. I, although he does that, of course, because he's so... And Terry Kitchen, they say, is even more so. Like The whole reason he chose to do abstract expressionism is because he was born as like an alpha male. He like could be president of Harvard. He could be a great lawyer. He could be pre- a great politician. Yeah, and he's like, yeah. one thing I was never good at is painting, so I decided to do that. Yeah, and it's, isn't it, it's driven by, doesn't he say that his dad was trying to be a poet and failed at it? So then he, in that same way. The family business to, is trying to be an artist and failing. Yeah. yeah. Because all of us could have been great athletes or thinkers, and we think it would be too easy. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Poor me. Poor practically everybody with so little durable good to leave behind. Yeah, well, that, that's why before his... Uh, I shouldn't call it an epiphany based on what we said, but that's before he starts to feel better about life, right? Like before the when potato he's just barn. thinking about his yep. yeah, uh, yeah. stripped down paintings. Yeah. Uh, one, one sort of in that same headspace, he's thinking about, Rabo's thinking about Mary Lee Kemp's life and uh, discovering that she's become a countess and this amazing person. And in comparing them, he says, she had had a life. I had accumulated anecdotes. She was home. Home was somewhere I never thought I'd be. Ironically, that is a clear conscious thought, so that is an epiphany. <laughs> like, he has that right. epiphany, but whatever. <laughs> the emptiest and yet the fullest of all human messages is goodbye. Tear up a little just saying it. <laughs> like, <laughs> one powerful. Of the cardinal human experience is that everything is ends eventually, and that makes everything precious. Things wouldn't be precious otherwise, but it makes everything sad. Right. As as George Carlin would say, unless you're buying a baby tortoise and you're 85, every pet you buy is like a funeral. You're buying you're buying a tragedy. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what makes you love them so much. Yeah. If if they were immortal, you'd be scared of them. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. But you wouldn't appreciate life as much. So goes the wisdom. Yeah. And that's such a proper because I just read uh, we had him on the crack podcast, Johnny Sun's book. It has right, a lot yeah. about goodbyes and about letting things go mm-hmm. and about how like one goodbye prepares you to do the rest of them makes you a little more capable you know and, yes. and there's upsides and to... again adherence of zen buddhism and meditation would say letting go is the only thing you can do in this life <laughs> it's yeah, the, yeah like your main task in life is to be fine with letting things go actually off of that um there's one part tor- about two-thirds of the way through karabikian talks about seeing people as bands of light which directly calls back his breakfast of champions appearance where his painting the temptation of saint anthony which is green field with an orange stripe on it the orange stripe is a band of light and he says that everyone boils down to a band of light and a band of meaning within them and everyone's just a thing like everyone matters that's the through line of his art that he never shares with anyone because he truly wants it to be abstract but he says like but i wink wink i am actually starting from a representative place so for example this big painting of aquamarine with three brown stripes in my mind is three deer drinking at a pool but i'd never tell people that because i want them to get whatever they get out of it but i think of it as the three deer souls and the color i chose because it's an average of the colors of the stream they were drinking out of or whatever he has hidden meanings in his paintings for himself only and he um in the in this book bluebeard karabikian introduces a real life verb which is flents and that's a verb for whalers stripping down whales to just the skeletons and removing all the other parts. And so he uses that as a verb for reducing people in his mind down to just their band of light. And the little line is, I just flence them and forgive them. 
which is yeah. how he handles people being terrible or people frustrating him. I don't know. That, that feels like almost a mantra I'm pulling out of it's this. Great, yeah. of like, you can just flance and forgive people. I know? get rid of all the meat until I can see nothing but their souls, which are small, flexible neon tubes. Then I forgive them. Yeah. Good line. Yeah. 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 Uh, Cersei's husband, dead husband, late husband, Abe Berman, who was a brain surgeon, uh, his last words were, I was a radio repairman. That just leads to a really great thought experiment from Cirrus where she's like, either he was just slamming words together as he died, or what I choose to believe is that he was having the thought that what if all the thoughts we have in our brains are coming from somewhere else, like the way your radio picks up a song, but the radio is not the originating source of that song. It's basically Jungian shared consciousness. It's very sirens too. Yeah, like what if the thoughts we have come from somewhere else and our brain is tuned to whatever station? Um, so in that way, you're not dead. That radio unit went dead. You wouldn't say that station is canceled. Uh, other state, other brains in the future will be tuned to that station, and we'll get more of those thoughts later. It's yeah. a cool, like interconnected thought of a dying man. Yeah, uh, yeah, and especially that whole chunk of the book is really fascinating because I uh, this book Galapagos. He does a lot of it with Mary Hepburn's husband. Uh, he, he's focused more and more on characters. I think that are someone falling apart mentally yeah. and how what that means and how that illustrates how we all are, how we're all meet. Definitely. Yeah. I think I have two more blurts. Cool. And then yeah. I'll do my Gatling gun yeah, yeah, of yeah. blurts. <laughs> one of them is, it's a Marilee Kemp one. We talked before about how her view of history became, became history as a process of men crushing women. And her quote about it is, the whole point of war is to put women everywhere in that condition. And the condition is uh, dependence on men for safety and resources. It's always men against women with the men only pretending to fight amongst themselves, which I, it was a reasonably neat summation of that whole viewpoint. I guess it's not an amazing quote, but it's something. I love that quote. I know I had that one as well. Oh, okay. uh, and I like the follow up lines just as much. The men are only pretending to fight amongst themselves. And he says, which I think is a great comeback for someone who's seen some of the war. Well, Maybe, but they can pretend pretty hard sometimes. <laughs> yeah, like you say, yeah. don't gloss over. Like they're really murdering each other. And then she has a great comeback, which is that's because they know that the ones who pretend the hardest get their pictures in the paper and medals afterward. Yeah. So it's great repartee. Yeah. And it's, also, it's really fleshing out that um, like my understanding of Marxism part is partly that it's boiling down all of humans dealing with each other to class and all economics. And so she's boiled down all of humans dealing with each other to gender. And yeah. it's, it's an interesting uh, and very direct way to possibly view the world. Yeah. I can't be I don't on know board if I totally 100% it, right, but... because if I swapped it in with race, then you'd be like, well, that's not right. If you're like, right, then... let's view all human interactions only through race, you'd be like, oh, we have a word for that, racism. But Yeah, well, then yeah. you're like, like uh, <laughs> we were talking about it in Bruges recently, like, then you're like that dwarf at that party where they're all high and the dwarf thinks there's going to be a race war and he can't right. totally explain it. Like, then yeah. you're that guy a little bit. <laughs> yeah, so um, I think uh, Mary Lee has every reason to view gender as one of the most powerful forces in her story. Yeah. Her story. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, but of course, I'm always hesitant to 100% say, all of life boils down to anything, right? any one thing. Yeah. I feel like we've done some huge concepts. This is more of a specific artistic one. Rabo, while he's working at an ad agency and not being an artist yet, because he's left Dan Gregory, he's tried taking a writing class. And he really struggles with the writing class because he's got a painter mindset, uh, according to him. 
but his quote is, To anybody who can draw, the idea of putting the appearance of anything into words is like trying to make a Thanksgiving dinner out of ball bearings and broken glass. So in, in, in his mind, <laughs> trying to use a typewriter instead of just drawing it is the weirdest and uh, craziest thing you could do. Sure, which maybe you could imagine is how Kurt felt when he tried to like play electric guitar, or paint a painting, you know, maybe yeah. he's pulling on that experience. <laughs> yeah, man, I would love to see Vonnegut head a band where he's yeah. Did he play guitar? Vocals and that electric cool. guitar? No, I don't know. <laughs> I don't. I expect not, but I have no idea. What if Zappa he was, was his bass persona, as, <laughs> yeah. like his Duke Silver? Yeah. <laughs> Parks and Rec character, people don't know. Well, I would be more likely to believe that Vonnegut took a dump on the stage than Zappa, actually, after finding out about both of their real lives. Uh, okay, that's all your blurts, right? That's my blurts. All right, I'm going to rapid fire some. I didn't see anybody I knew, but that was hardly surprising since everybody I know is dead. <laughs> I just think that's funny. <laughs> he's like talking about a party he's going to. He's like, yeah. anyone I know? Anyone I Oh, that's right. All my uh, friends are dead. Yeah. <laughs> What he says about Polly Madison's books, uh, she has a book called Kitsch. Oh, no, this is her summary of it. It's about a girl whose boyfriend tried to make her think she has bad taste, which she does, but it doesn't matter much. And I think that's really important because it's a, it slips right by. It's a very mundane line. But I do think it contains a kernel of a really important thing about gender dynamics or just interpersonal dynamics with other human beings. It doesn't matter. Like, you're not wrong, Walter. You're just an asshole. In this story where the only thing you know is there's a girl and a boy and the boy spends the whole time proving to her that she's dumb. Like she, let's say she likes the wrong season of Star Trek. Yeah. It doesn't matter if he's right or wrong. What matters is that he's being mean <laughs> right. unnecessarily to his girlfriend. And I think that's important. Like <laughs> be nice, not right. <laughs> oh, that's great. Dan Gregory, who, as we've said, is all about reality and not having symbolism and uh, I think one of the best things Vonnegut points out or Rabo points out is that he's a fucking hypocrite. And this is taught in film school also. You cannot create representative art that is not propaganda because your artistic choices are on an instinctive level tied to your view of the world. They're like the uh, There's a famous documentary about the battle for Algiers and it's shown as a great example of someone who's trying to not be propagandistic, but you can't not. Because if you show more footage of this side getting killed than that side, you know who you're supposed to sympathize with via film grammar. Yeah. Um, so the same thing is true about anything representational. If you're going to draw something, not take a photo, and even a photo because you can crop it, right? But if you're going <laughs> to like try and capture life through your eyes, yeah. it's through your eyes. There's some kind of judgment. And... Dan Gregory has no qualms about that. And he says, like, yeah, I paint black people as looking poor and dumb. And that is a judge. Yeah, that's what I think black people are right are like. You're damn right. I'm making a judgment on reality and reflecting that reality. Rabo says, of course, I think that sucks. And yes, now that I think about it, maybe the most admirable thing about abstract expressionist painters, since so much senseless bloodshed has been caused by cockeyed history lessons, was their refusal to serve on such a court. Yeah. So he's saying, like, yeah. at least the abstract paintings aren't telling you, you know, you should be really proud of American ideals. Maybe you should go to war with someone who's against American ideals. <laughs> and it would be patriotic, you know, like liberty leading the people painting. He's yeah. like, at least these paintings that are just of squares, 
No one's going to be like, we need to attack Spain because of this painting I saw about squares, you know? <laughs> Maybe Helter Skelter, but <laughs> no, <laughs> not <yeah>. a Rothko. <laughs> <laughs> I actually, and I, I love that quote and I agree with it. And also there's some recent historical writing that argues that American abstract expressionism was partly funded by the U.S. government to reject socialist realism by the Russians and to reject that style, yeah. which is arguing that actually the government directly used well, the lack Pollock of a... paint splotches to reject the socialist idea of like, there's an accurate picture of a worker or something like that. And they're like, see paint? That's almost funny. Yeah. In the government's <laughs> mind, they're like, let's just prove that you can paint anything, even crazy shit that no one cares about that means right. nothing. <laughs> then all the, it's like Trumpism. They're like, then all the other paintings that are telling truths, they'll see that as wacky shit too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like very time for some game theory, 4D chess kind of thing. Interesting, the, yeah. There's but, some writers arguing that that happened. But then little do they know, I mean, everything's multifactorial, right? Little do they know abstract expressionism does end up having real meaning in its own way. So it's right. like both are true. Yeah, It's yeah. a real movement, and maybe it was funded by the government. Interesting. <laughs> who is more to be pitied, a writer bound and gagged by policemen or one living in perfect freedom who has nothing more to say? Yeah, that was great. And that's, uh, I think, a Sears quote, but... She's just mad at Paul Slazinger, who thinks the most important thing is how you say it. And she, of course, writes very straightforward writing that they point out is not great, but she has a lot of real true things to say. Yeah. It's like, it's how I think of the Harry Potter books. Not good. <laughs> but the oh, sequence man. of things, not well written sentence to sentence. I oh. mean, not terrible, but not, not, there's no unique voice to the writing. There's nothing that's spectacular or transcendent in any way. I but, disagree, but that's okay. Fine. Yeah. But my opinion is, nevertheless, the sequence of things that happen are so fun and well put together that they're great, that they're, yeah. that they're a great ride. So I <laughs> heartily endorse Harry Potter, but yeah. I don't think she's Dostoevsky or Vonnegut, you know. Oh, yeah. No, yeah who but, have like a unique yeah. voice where you read a paragraph of theirs and you go, that's Harlan Ellison, you know. <laughs> that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, we, we could deep dive on that. Sure. I I, 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 I'm uh, sure the fans would love a deep dive into Harry Potter from book one to book so oh, probably. I'd be fine with doing that. <laughs> also, I, the other writer touchstone I think of for her is Dickens. Like, she's very good at again, quality yeah. writing that is also popular. And I would again call, oh, so you call it quality. I would yeah. call Dickens bargain bin writing that is popular. <laughs> oh, yeah. I think they're both so good at character, I think, and, and quick, punchy, interesting character. Maybe I just right need away. experiment. Would yeah. I, I, they're good at not fucking up. Like they never yeah. write a sentence that's bad, yeah, but right. they also never write something that I would blurt. They never write something oh. that's like, that is a timeless, like that's a Twain, that's a Shakespeare, that is a truth. You, you struck right to the heart of me with that sequence of words. Oh my God. No. Yeah, I see what you mean. They yeah. just write sentences that grammatically work and are fine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I see that. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, <laughs> uh, I got four left. Beware of God's bearing gifts. That's oh, what yeah. Terry Kitchen says. And I think the point is just uh, with great power comes great responsibility, right? He's born to be, a, he's born with this innate ability to be a fabulous painter. And a lot of people, of course, would be jealous of that and want it for themselves. But he ends up blowing his brains out because he's so sad and frustrated his whole life. You know, just because someone's born smart and handsome and strong, you don't know how great their life's going to go. That's all. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking of it now, but in a lot of his letters, Vonnegut writes about 
Like my son's has the ability to be an amazing writer. My daughter Edith could be an amazing painter. They're figuring out how much they need to run with that ability, if at all. And, and they're seeing it happen with his kids. And he's saying it's a pressure. Like the talents yeah. that you seem to be genetically predisposed toward are actually a pressure and an obligation from God yeah. to live up to that potential. Yeah, yeah. Like for all I know, I would have been much happier as a farmer, but because my high school friends laughed at me growing up and then I started writing comedy, I'm like, now I have to make it in Hollywood. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah, yeah. And it's like, for all I know, I would have been happier as a sprout farmer, <laughs> but I'll never know that because this is my path now. Yeah. I think I think I even saw that on a, a pretty basic level with uh, fellow high school students at my high school. Once we all started getting our SAT ACT scores back, you could I feel like I saw a few people be like, "Oh yeah, this number says I am a genius or I'm not, and I should calibrate." Right, and before maybe crazy. I was the kind of dude who want, <laughs> I really thought I would just work at a factory, go home every day and hang out with my buddies and play in my garage band. But I got 780 on the, it's higher now, so I don't know what a good score is. But like, you know, I got X on math, X on reading. I guess I have to be a lawyer, you know? Right, right. I saw people who definitely were like, my scores indicate that I'm squandering my potential. Yeah, Yeah, it's like, well, if you're happy, no, you know? I don't know. (laughs) If you want to found a microbrewery, just do that. I don't care. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Oh, I like, okay, uh, wrapping up the blurts. Vonnegut is a huge fan of serendipity. In all of his books, the plot is held together by sitcom levels of coincidence. Like in Seinfeld, how they're constantly running into Uncle Leo on the street in a city of 8 million people. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But he says of the serendipity throughout, One would soon go mad if one took such coincidences seriously. One might be led to suspect there are things going on in the universe which he or she did not thoroughly understand. (laughs) Good uh, sarcasm there. Reeking of sarcasm. Then he says of the, this is his visit to Marilee. So he visits Marilee in this big uh, palace or palazzo in Italy. And she ends up buying a bunch of his abstract expressionist paintings to mix in with the very classic Renaissance paintings that, of course, adorn the palazzo. And he says, I now think of the rotunda of that palazzo when it still had its pagan as well as its Christian images as a Renaissance effort to make an atom bomb. It cost a great deal of money and employed many of the best minds of the time, and it compressed into a small space and in bizarre combinations the most powerful forces of the universe as the universe was understood in the 15th century. That's really cool. I love the idea that like the dudes in Egypt putting together the pyramid project are the same type of dudes who are working on the Manhattan project. They're like, rather than it puts it in the context of like, look, we want to build a thing that's so impressive that people fear us and we believe in magic. So we're going to chalk it full of statues of every magic god that we know of. So it's like, yeah, the pyramids were an A-bomb. It didn't work because it turns out magic gods and curses aren't real. But that was what they were trying to do. Yeah. Like a cathedral, the attempt was when you're a peasant and you walk into a cathedral – you're supposed to fucking be like, oh, God must be real and I'm scared of him because look at these statues and paintings. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're amazing. Look how big this building is. Right. God must be real. <laughs> it's yeah. interesting to think of it as a weapon. Yeah, and that uh, like, oh, our society organized itself. So all the top people are doing this one thing while the rest of us grow food and run shops and whatever. Yes, but and... like, yeah, but religion is a weapon of the state and therefore cathedrals are peasant bombs. Yeah. To make you obey religion. Because that was the force at the time. Now our forces are military. So we don't build a bigger cathedral. We build a hydrogen bomb. 
Yeah, wow. To keep the peasants in line. It's the same. <laughs> wow, wow, wow. That's cool. <laughs> Good shit. Good shit. I'm sure people who find great solace in religion don't feel that way 100% about uh, religion, but yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, and then last but not least, because it's on, uh, I think, the main topic of the book, ab- abstract expressionism. He says, abstract expressionism was the pure essence of human wonder, wholly apart from food, from sex, from clothes, from houses, from drugs, from cars, from news, from money, from crime, from punishment, from games, from war, from peace, and surely apart from the universal human impulse among painters and plumbers alike toward inexplicable despair and self-destruction. Actually, it reminded me of one more. It's super Do related. It. Uh, it's Marilee Kemp talking about the abstract expressionists to Rabo. She says, it was the last conceivable thing a painter could do to a canvas. So you did it. Leave it to Americans to write the end. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. About the idea About of... the color field kind of stuff. Where yeah. It's just, she's like, that's it. Damn it. Now it's almost how we now live in a post, post, postmodern world where they're like, now we have movies that like is a Lego animated mashup of Batman and there's nothing you right. can do anymore. We're done. Like you can't push the envelope with media. Yeah. It almost, I just watched, uh, when we're taping this, the previous Rick and Morty episode mm-hmm. was one where the framing devices, they're going to go on an adventure to Atlantis, but instead it's all at the Citadel of Rick's and a lot happens in 20 or so minutes because, a lot of the setting setup is touchstones to stuff like cop yeah. movies and gangster movies. And so they, it, it is an, a, an original piece of art, but it is so dependent on 20 other kinds of art that we yes. already had. So like, but yeah, reference is now also done. That's a genre. Yeah, we Like self-referential mashups. Yeah. Genre mashups, I think, are rising in popularity because after you get to the point where you're making, let's try abstract Let's try just colors. And in film, you can see things like this and like Enter the Void, yeah. the movie that's famously, there's big sections that are just like crazy intense colors and shit. And it's like, okay, that's everything. <laughs> like we've done all shades of meaning, mashups of everything and meaninglessness. Right. That's the end. You yeah. did all the genres. Good job, Art. <laughs> and, and also that it's like a little bit of a jerk move on the part of Americans to like plant the flag. Like, ah, we did it. We're <laughs> At done. the end of painting. We finished. We, we, finished. Ended, we ended painting. Everybody saw me finish, right? right. I finished. Like Great. until technology fundamentally changes the media and we have like VR 3D painting or something. Right. We right. did kind of all you can do now. We're done. Like there's a guy who did real paintings of the Virgin Mary that he painted with his own shit. It's like at that point, <laughs> yeah. there's no more paintings you can do where you're like, I never heard of that. That's really pushing the envelope. Yeah. We already have shit paintings of Jesus. Like that's, that's as <laughs> edgy as you're going to get, my friends. <laughs> and performance artists who like put their lives in danger while they do the art. We've pushed everything to the nth degree. Oh, yeah. Or like sell their virginity or something. Yeah, or some extreme personal done it. thing. It's it happened. done. <laughs> already done. <laughs> yeah, that's a great one. Um, speaking of abstract expressionists, let's get into a segment called Recurring Characters Update. Let's find out what's happening with them. With those characters. Because they're out at the gym. They're getting yoked. (laughs) I wonder what a Vonnegut gym would look like. All the off-screen time, they're doing elliptical. (laughs) All cardio, no weights. Yeah, you can't. It's a thirty-minute limit. Well, that's how you get that sleek Vonnegut look. Oh, okay. Uh, this is, if you haven't heard the show, this is a segment where we check on, on which characters in this week's book are in previous books. This one is pretty light on them. We did say in Breakfast of Champions, Vonnegut promised to free all his characters. And this book is very light on recurring ones, except for main character, Rabo Karabikian, 
as he said, he he as we said, he's a key scene in Breakfast of Champions. Also, his paintings get alluded to in Dead Eye Dick, and actually, Dead Eye Dick sort of weirdly thematically connected to this book, even though there's almost no setting overlap or character overlap. And then uh, beyond that, the only other really one is Paul Slazinger will be featured in Hocus Pocus as well, which is the next novel we'll look at. It's a similar personality, but a very different life. In Hocus Pocus, he gets a job at the college in the book and wins a MacArthur Genius Grant. So everything goes great. Kind of Harvey P. Carr in this, essentially, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, besides that, it's mostly new people, new situations, a lot of New York still, um, and also a lot of real artists who are in real life. Well done, my friend. From there, Next. let's <laughs> do a segment called Kurt Cameo. Oh, Cameo. gonna be about as short as the last one. There's not a lot. <laughs> Where does Kurt Vonnegut appear in the book? Literally nowhere, except for the intro and so on. But why'd you do this segment, Alex? Because uh, <laughs> I think uh, Karabikian is a pretty clear thematic one for me as a Kurt cameo. I think as we explore whether Karabikian's art has meant anything, we're exploring whether Vonnegut's art has meant anything. As we're exploring, as we're exploring whether Karabikian's war experiences are too dominant in his mind, Vonnegut's exploring that with his own war experiences in Dresden. Um, and then also, I feel like this book has pretty high amount of female characters who get to be Kurt mouthpieces from time to time. And I don't know if I'm not noticing problems with that, but I think that's a cool step for him to make Cersei Berman and Mary Lee Kemp and even a little bit Karabikian's mother maybe pop up as people who speak for Vonnegut in the book. All right. Yeah. Disagree. So I'd say there's distri- distributed cameos all over. Sure, but sure. Yeah. I disagree, but my disagreements take the form of Vanna Wetz, so I'm I, saying Yeah, I them. figured. Let's get into that, that segment. That tense silence is me loading my Gatling gun of problems <laughs> with this book. It it segues perfectly. Let's get into a segment called Vanna Wetz. Vanna Wetz. Vanna Wetz. I'm coming for you, Vanna. Problematic. You just, I imagine the whole gear up sequence from the movie Commando with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah. Where he's on that beach and he's about to go in and he's just strapping in knives and ammo. And oh, no, those great. are the sounds I make when I'm making love. Did that oh. not scan? No, no. no. I, that's what I say to Jen. I'm coming for you, Vonnegut. Then I mean, we get down. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we were making love in the room, but I figured yes, the noises always. were supposed to be something else. This was originally, the podcast was going to be called Making Love in the Room with Alex and Mike. But <laughs> blame Dan radio. O'Brien. Thought it was off topic for a Vonnegut podcast. I don't get it. Blame him. So do you have what? Yeah, I have... And overall, Vanawat, that I also feel like I'm a little out of my depth on, I feel like this book, less so than Galapagos, we felt like Galapagos had a lot of female characters, but they were often just wombs or just props. And then like six of them were cannibal savages, right. which is not Who great. Who were sexually yeah. abused as children. Yeah. And, you know. I feel like this book has a lot of female characters. I don't know if they are always used in a totally positive way. I think they often are. I think he often succeeds. But there are also situations where, for instance, Rabo Karabikian is hearing about his female cook having had three abortions in life. And Karabikian goes, this wearied me hearing about it. But then almost everything about the modern world wearies me. And like... What a weird response to a woman telling you about her abortions to be like boring. I, I need know. To move on and with what my a day. lack of sympathy for like you like, would think it would be like, yeah. oh, that must have been hard. 
Yeah, like that on his own, that on its own pretty much makes him a villain. Yes. Like, what the hell? And he's like, that he has that fuddy-duddy, like, I mean, I don't know if I can call it fuddy-duddy, because I I know there's like, a religious background and observant Christians have these feelings for a reason. I'm not trying to decry that. But it is relatively flippant for him to be like, he's like, her 15-year-old daughter's already taking birth control. And he says it as if that's like scandalous. First of all, Women start taking birth control sometimes as soon as they start their period to regulate painful menstrual right. cramps. There's other aspects. So to fuck that. yourself, dude. You just yeah. didn't like are not educated about their way, like what's going on with them. Yeah. yeah. Um. Because he obviously assumes it means she is like a slut or whatever. <laughs> uh, is the like undertone of that sentence, and then he immediately says, "And I further found out her mom's had like three abortions." Right. And there's other. There's other. There's at one point he describes Cersei as a sexual bully. For some reason, there's also there's a, a really random feeling part where he talks about a piece in the New York. It's fictional, but a piece in the New York Times where some kind of scientist is theorizing that men and women used to be separate species and that the victorious species was men and then females genitalia are a defeated genitals and then the clitoris is like the inseminating organ of a defeated species it sounds as nuts as i'm saying right like all of the the blue and weird and and like we used to all be men and then the men who were manly enough evolved into women yeah it's a very insulting view of evolution yeah and there's a there's an undercurrent of just weird 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 treatment of women mixed into multiple female characters getting to be important and fleshed out and thoughtful and I don't know what to make of that exactly, because I think in, in other books of the 80s that we've looked at, he's pretty on top of some of his own issues, like he'll call them out and he'll make a point of, I, I know this is dumb. Uh, this one, I don't know if he's that on top of it. I don't think he's self-aware about the idea that it's not okay to resent a woman for the fact that she made you horny. Yeah. I he uh, This is the another book where he... Says it as if it makes sense to his presumably like male readers. Like she walked in and made me horny. Man, what a bully. You know what I mean? You know how (laughs) these women make you horny and it's their fault? And it's like I think we – most – People nowadays, one of the things we've been taught is that's not true. Like, <laughs> right. women aren't asking for it based on their clothing, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. 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 You can't resent that a woman aroused you. Yeah. I think that I forget if it's before or after this book chronologically, but there's one book where he says that, like, he says something like lines of men are hope are hoping pretty ladies won't help them go, won't make them go masturbate again. Yeah, you know? like and just it's by like, existing. Please don't do that to me, the man. It's yeah. so hard. And it's yeah. a, I don't know if he ever gets over that perspective, and it's weird. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's most of it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, here we go. <laughs> crack Oof. of my knuckles for this one. That was one. not a sound effect. That nope. was legit. That was my knuckle crack. I've been saving <laughs> up. Um, I don't... So, disclaimer, this book is by Rob O'Karabiki and a character who is flawed and learns lessons. Yes. So, uh, apologists can always say, and I'm not going to argue with you, Kurt didn't mean that. That was something Robbo thought. And we'll never know what percentage is what, right? Because clearly Dwayne Hoover thinks racist things, and clearly yeah. Vonnegut did that to represent what racist people think, not what he thinks, blah, blah, blah. Right. Yeah. But that said, that's the last caveat I'm going to give. All the rest <laughs> is real harsh. Robbo 
His whole point seems to be that he has a real affinity for art and what it really means and the capturing of the human essence or what it is to be alive. And he hates how the paying of great sums of money for art cheapens it. Yet he's totally willing. He never tries not to sell all his paintings for the maximum amount possible to companies that he grants are destroying the earth and get as much money as possible. And he accepts passively accepts living in a mansion with beachfront like mary lee was given all this shit and then decides this is weird that i have all this shit i should spread the wealth around yeah. he's like i hate how we're so capitalist i'm an artist yes jeffco evil company that i think is evil i will accept seven million dollars to give you this painting i actually pronounced it as gefco <laughs> great great alex fine <laughs> moving on before i was so rudely interrupted he kills all female characters this is vonnegut now he kills all female characters as soon as he's done with them um oh. this time it was edith and merrily oh. to a lesser degree yeah does she does she i guess she does die in the what book what i mean but, that but yes, after a long life merrily I mean. dies in the book after a long life but my point is she could have stayed alive, and he seems to have a knee-jerk reaction, especially in Galapagos, worst of all, where once a man has completed his part in the story, he'll always say, like, then this happened to him. Yeah. With a woman, when she's done her last scene, he always goes, she died, like, right after that. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a pattern. It comes yeah, up a it lot. It is a pattern, yeah. I think Robbo is so rich and becomes rich so easily, it's hard to identify with him a bit. Robbo's, is that a what? Is that, like, a, I, uh, an in, issue? Well, because I think... I think you are supposed to identify. I guess, I guess so, yeah, overall, yeah. I feel true. like this is yet another book where it's rich white guy's problems and we're supposed to care the most about his oh, problems. Sure. Whereas my main takeaway at the end of the what's is Mary Lee's story of her life from her own point of view is interesting, is uh, infinitely more interesting oh. and would have made a much better book. Yeah, a, maybe. A much better book would have Whoa. been Mary Lee's life with Rabo as a supporting character because the main point of the book was the point she learned anyway. Oh, I'm floored <laughs> by that. That should have been the book. I, I Yeah, right? And I think Vonnegut's just not comfortable writing from a woman's perspective, so he couldn't. But... The, the, her, the plot of her life is more meaningful, more impactful to the meaning of the book, more directly on topic, and much more exciting. More shit happens to her. Yeah, and you can keep Rabo in it as a side character, probably. He can do all the same stuff he did. for her life. Yeah. <laughs> it, should be, it should be from her perspective. It should. I'm so glad I got you on that. <laughs> Oh, this man. is genuine, guys. I can see it in his eyes. I got right. him. Because <laughs> the like I said, the book has a lot of stuff in it to me about Kurt Vonnegut figuring out whether his own art has meant anything and been a thing. And then also lots of other exciting themes. I think it's from Rabo's perspective specifically so he can do the personal Kurt stuff. Yes. And you would have but at the, end, the, the rest is, of the book minus that if you just focus on Marilyn. The message is it's the woman's turn now. Right. You could have written the book from the woman's point of view. It's like the Confederacy guys where you're like, do you not get how it's weird that two white guys are pitching a show about what if slavery yeah. still existed? Like, right, right, right. And I mean, their <laughs> message sucks. But like Vonnegut, you're writing a book whose message is positive, but you're unaware of the representational aspects that you're still a rich white guy writing about a rich white guy, what he thinks about how women have been oppressed. It's like maybe even a, a fictional woman could have been the one navigating this journey about women being oppressed. So I actually, so let me pull a letter for a sec. Sure. There's a letter Kurt Vonnegut wrote in January 1987 to Peter Reed. And as he's talking about, he says, I'm about a month from finishing another novel, the one about an abstract expressionist painter in his 70s. 
And he goes on to say, I wish to hell I knew what the book is really about. I should know by this time. My God, I'm on page 305. Oh, and that's not from the book. That's Vonnegut's. That's him talking to people in life. So I think he wrote the whole book, probably realized when he finished it that, oh, it's women's turn. But he didn't go back and rewrite the book. It's the punchline of the book, but maybe it's not where he started. If he'd known that going in, maybe. I still still don't think he he feels comfortable enough with women to have written it from Marilee's perspective. But if he'd known the point from the beginning, maybe he would have taken a shot at it. Well, it's clearly about both by the end. It's about what is art and what makes art meaningful? And then what's the relationship of gender identity to like the sorrows of World War One and Two? Yeah. And I and think he started from art. He probably started from art, so he yeah. kept that the A plot. I think if he made that the B plot and the thing that he ended at the A plot, it's just a more compelling read. Yeah, probably. But yeah, so anyway, continuing on. That's amazing. Direct hit. Fauna gets hit. <laughs> Explodes. You sank his battleship. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Basic stuff. When describing Polly Madison's story, The Underground, he says it's about the black, the Japanese, and the Jew who all get together and, and learn, etc. Yeah, uh, yeah. That's probably Rabo's fault, not Vonnegut's fault. Like, I'm sure he's yeah. self-aware that that's problematic language. <laughs> uh, as you said, he says, uh, and my cook's daughter, Celeste, this is a quote, does no work for me, yet gets to live here and eat my food and entertain her loud and willfully ignorant friends on my tennis courts in my swimming pool on my private ocean front bitch it's not yours you got this house for free yeah <laughs> you're it's your wife's and she only let you live there out of pity and you already said you're a grumpy old man who stays in one room all day let the kids have a place to crash and enjoy their childhood right like you shouldn't be grumpy about it he you should be it. pleased that you're you can give something back to anyone yeah. You're talking about leaving a durable, good legacy behind. You're helping give these poor children a, like, mansion to be raised in. That's pretty dope. And Mary Lee Kemp does use her mansion for things like that. And here you are resenting them, which now, as I say it, could easily be an intentional point of growth. Yeah. Like, maybe he wouldn't say that by the end of the book. <laughs> but, <laughs> but at the beginning, he, like, resents that he has to give up a few rooms of the hundred-room mansion that he inherited. It's like, <laughs> fuck off. Yeah. Well, and also, and if I'm focusing more on uh, Allison and Celeste being raced and a different mm-hmm. race, then it's a little bit worse too. Like yes, it's like oh, the oh, these encroaching black kids, willfully ignorant uh, is a yeah, it gets a lot like worse. Dog yeah. whistle. Um, <laughs> I think naming Circe or Circe, Circe, which of course the first thing any like classically educated person thinks of is the witch from the Odyssey. Right. And he um, calls her a witch in the book. <laughs> and he calls her a witch and like Cersei, she is specifically like a thorn in the paw of men, yeah. which is what Cersei represents like crazy bitches who get in the way of this nice guy, Odysseus, who's trying to get home. <laughs> so I think he does cast Cersei Berman as like, she's like an, uh, an obstructionist witch who comes in and fucks up your man shit that you were trying to get done. Yeah. And... I think that's acceptable if that's her role and if Rabo learns by the end that she's just a human being and she he should accept her wisdom on its own terms. But I think it was a fatal flaw to reveal by the end of the book that the reason she's so quirky is she has a raging pill addiction. Yes. That was weirdly – that was a misstep. Because I do think he realizes her importance and that – and I think he subtly likes her all along. But yeah. you're right that making it a pill thing is – weird like can't she be wise and sassy and think outside the box without it being because like oh this crazy lady is on pills that's why she's so hysterical that sounds like something a misogynist would attribute it to you know what i mean and also and this probably also because i could see some some author or writer trying to make a thing where a 
uh, story has a manic pixie kind of character, and then you reveal that it has to do with some kind of mental illness. Like Garden State actually kind of does that. Yes, but, uh, but I, this is too early in culture for him to be doing some kind of self aware thing. I think. Yeah, and I even yeah. think the mental illness thing is weird because like pe- can't people have quirky personalities and not be like there is something wrong with them physically? Yeah. It's just a weird like requirement <laughs> yeah. for a dream girl to be manic and pixie ish is that she has like there's some really wrong like. She's crazy. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> uh, he calls all the banks that go wrong, bad in the Depression El Banco Busto, which is just associating the Spanish language with poverty and, and corruption. Very somewhat oh, minor, yeah. but it bothers me. It's not great. In a similar way, he has one Chinese-American character in the whole book. His name is Sam Wu. And yet again, he is a Chinese laundry person, which is the most stereotypical possible job. And he serves as the model for Fu Manchu, which we've literally already done in a past Vonnegut book have a Chinese guy unfairly described as Fu Manchu. I think he can get over the Fu Manchu thing at some yeah. point. I don't that rang a little self-aware to me when I read it, but I, maybe it isn't. Yeah, I don't know. I guess yeah. it bothered me that he said like he made a point of saying, "Imagine how hard it was for me to fight for my country when my only friend was a Chinese guy." And it's like, oh, well, yeah, why gross. is he less yeah. meaningful than an Amer- like an American friend who was white and born in America? Yeah. Why does that mean less? That's weird to say. <laughs> um, okay, uh, I feel like his first wife Dorothy's basically a ghost. I was like always wanted to know more yeah. about her and never got to. Yeah, and I also I took I took away a little real life Kurt and Jane Vonnegut stuff there. Yeah, like Kurt, I think Kurt felt like his personality and his fixation on his career probably helped sink that marriage. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Uh, okay, here's a real bad one. Circe says, Circe says, "We're the Indians now." That quote is in response to German investors come and look at his oceanfront mansion and offer him a slightly below market price for it. And it and he's offended because he thought they were coming to offer money for some of his paintings, but really they want to buy his oceanfront property and turn it into condos at a low price because he's getting on in years and they feel like he'll probably sell because he's old and he wants to retire to a smaller place. Yeah. And she says, yep, that's what they do. They come and take your land and they don't even pay you what it's worth. We're the Indians now. Let me remind you what she's comparing the fact that he was going to get ripped off on his mansion for is the story that we bought Manhattan from the Indians or like white guys bought Manhattan from the Indians for like 16 bead necklaces and then slaughtered them all. I don't really think that's on par with your beachfront mansion didn't get the offer on the market that you thought it should. (laughs) Like, yeah, yeah, I just, to say we're the yeah. Indians now and it's, use Indians as synonymous with, like, people who get ripped off and massacred, <laughs> it's problematic on so many levels. It's not good. And yeah. that's what made me really be like, I, there's lots of stories about rich white people problems where the problems are human and resonant and I can sympathize completely. But there is a genre of rich white people problems where the problems are too frivolous and you're too rich and white. I'm sorry. Like, I don't care. Yeah. And yeah. Actually, one of my, when we get to relay reading, one of mine is specifically a story that I think they successfully make rich white people stuff interesting. Cause yes. that, that was in my head as I read this, like it's a lot of rich white people stuff. Yes. When it works, it's great. And when it's not working, that really looms. Cause you know, I hear people who are, anti-PC if that's a thing you can be these days. But like I hear people when they're like, so what, every story we ever tell should be about the Holocaust or slavery or something? And I'm like, no, 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 no. But I'll just say it rubs me the wrong way when a movie or book is 
super just about white people whose lives are objectively really good and the only problem in the movie is they're unhappy for some reason and they just want to muddle it out and there's other characters in the movie with way worse lives and they never interact with them or try to help them right right um, and I yeah. also and I do think in this book he is reasonably self-aware of it and apologizing for it a bit through the process of Rabo's his stand-in. Rabo at the end of the book realizes the thing I am the best at is documenting my life. And I don't know if that means anything, but I can document my life. And I think Kurt's kind of admitting the thing I'm best at is talking about white people and now rich white people because I became one. And that's, you know, like of all my stories, a lot of them are founded in my own life and my life's that. And that's that's kind of what I've got. You know, you can. Yep. I through my art and my efforts try to write about other things, too. But I keep documenting this thing that's my life. And that's what I've got. It's a yeah. tricky issue. And I think yeah. we're navigating it right now as a culture because. There's been this sur- this pushback that totally makes sense, which is, look, all stories, even like stories of female people of color, like 80% of them, at least in Hollywood especially, are being told by like what a white dude thinks, how hard he thinks it would be to be a woman of color in whatever situation. Right. And uh, we're having a pushback where it's like, maybe let a woman of color write that. Totally, totally. And then yeah. there's other people who say... Okay, anything in extreme is too far, though. Are you saying a white guy can never write a story with any character that's not a white male? Because then we end up with everyone only writes movies about whatever their specific life is. Like, you can basically right. only write an autobiography. Yeah, we're, like, roping off art too much Sure, at that point. true, yeah. too. So yeah. there's got to be a balance in the middle. We're going to find it together as a society. One thing we know right now is it's balanced much more towards the white guys sharing their perception of things way. Oh, big time. So let's try balancing it the other way. Yeah. We're not saying the opposite extreme. And, and also that that imbalance in the final product of the art is reflecting an imbalance in the people making it. Like uh, right. Mostly. And so until like, that's rectified, yeah. there's still much more need for voices of people who are underrepresented to be writing things about people who are underrepresented. Right. Yeah, for sure. All right. So here we go. I think he has a great, uh, if you saw Inside Lewin Davis moment, he has a moment at art school. Did, go what, on. Yeah. Have you seen that? Yeah, it's it's one, one of, of my, my related readings. Oh, it's one of my favorite <laughs> movies of all time. It's incredible, yeah. Um, and he has... Uh, He says, I think it is somehow very useful and maybe even essential for a fine artist to somehow make his piece on canvas with the things he cannot do. That is what attracts us to serious paintings, that shortfall, which we might call personality or maybe even pain. And that's a teacher explaining to him why he should give up on art because he's so talented and everything looks so much like a photo that it's bland. And I'm just calling that a what? Because I call fucking BS on that. I'm sorry. Art is not a magic, God-giving passion from inside you. Passion can be instilled. Having something to say can be learned by exposing yourself to more of the world and learning things and then ha- and then having more things to say. Yeah. Like, just because a 15-year-old brings you a portfolio that doesn't seem to reek of worldly wisdom, you're going to tell them to stop trying? I hate the mystification of art. Like, when, whenever yeah. people ask us, how do we write comedy? How do I get into Cracked? I'm like... Start writing jokes now in your notebook. It's not hard. It's just practice. It's the same as if you practice piano, you would become better at piano than you are now. And I don't like art teachers especially. I had a poetry teacher who told me to quit. And I'm like, you don't tell someone to quit when they're 14 because you don't fucking know. know. Also, you're a teacher for a reason, not a famous poet. Fuck off. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 
Well, and also, and I, from other stuff we read, I think Vonnegut agrees. Like he, he talks about so how too. stories can be taken apart and reassembled. Like cars learn the parts yes. of a car, make a good car. And like, Lou, inside yeah. Lewin Davis has possibly the most crushing iteration of that exchange that I've ever experienced. Oh, when he's sitting with, uh, there's not, I don't, I don't Abraham? see any money in it. Yeah. 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 There are a lot of movies and books that touch on how crushing it is to be an artist, pour your soul into something and have an executive dismiss it. The iteration of that in Inside Lewin Davis is the most heart-wrenching version of that scene I've ever oh, experienced. Because it's so one-on-one. And it's, it's, because yeah, it's great. he plays directly to camera, looking you deep in the eyes, one of the most objectively moving renditions of a beautiful song that has deep human resonance that you've ever heard in a movie. Yeah. And it just immediately cuts the executive saying, hey, I don't think it's a hit. I don't see money in it. Yep. And they let him play the full three-minute song in the movie. So, like, as a punchline on the scene, it just destroys you. <laughs> uh, yeah, so let's get through what so we can talk about Coen Brothers movies. Yeah, that's going to be great. He makes a point of saying the cook at Dan Gregory's house who dies immediately and never enters the story again is a hermaphrodite. It has no symbolic weight, oh, but yeah. he obsessively mentions that they were a hermaphrodite every time they come up. And then when Maoris as a culture come up, literally the first sentence is, you know, they're cannibals. What is his fucking obsession with thinking? Oh, I forgot about that. Anyone who grew up yeah. in a tribal society must eat people. Like, his that's can- really problematic. Yeah, his cannibal thing is such a weird peccadillo. <laughs> yeah. That is so strange. He really thinks, like, African <laughs> and, like, Polynesian and Caribbean people, if you have a tribal society, you fuck your sister and you eat people. And I don't right. like that. <laughs> right. Societies that, like, only have climate in common. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not, it's across continents of yeah. <laughs> people near jungles. His his anti-technology thing that I still disagree with, he has a long digression comparing a nuclear power station to like an alien visitor. He says, oh, it's yeah. a building that you see and you know aliens are here or people from the future are here and we've lost. Our planet is now colonized. I actually, I kind of like that line. I see like, why people like it <laughs> and I see why people fear nuclear power. But I am, after a lot of research on the side of nuclear power is largely a positive force. It's a good transitional energy source until we're fully on cleaner power. It's much better than fossil fuels. Yes, meltdowns happen. Yes, nuclear safety is crucial and paramount. But uh, being totally against nuclear power, I think, is a regressive stance. Yeah, I'm, I'm not hardline against it. I, I, I just on a pure artistic level liked describing the way the structures look as being alien ships. Yeah. Like, there's something resonant I just there. know because of Player yeah. Piano and other stuff that he means it. He's anti-nuclear oh, right. power. And right, he said yeah. that in interviews, and I'm not. That's all. <laughs> um, he says, Robbo says to himself, we do do well, though. I wonder what it is about Armenians that they always do so well. Fine. I get it. It's a positive stereotype. It's like saying Chinese people are so good at math. You're still not supposed to. It's not your place to say, white boy. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah. that, you know, like if he had wrote, my character's Jewish, so I'm allowed to say, you know, Jews do control the media and we're really great at it. That's not a compliment. You're still being problematic by stereotyping Jews in any particular way. Yeah. I would yeah, say. It is. <laughs> I guess that is true that, yeah, Armenians in the book, it's like a very- Are all shrewd in the way that often we associiate with- Yeah, it's, like a, it's, a very, it's a very gentle version of Jews have all the money. Of anti-Semitism. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is not good. <laughs> um, 
He, and he, there's a, oh, I, I was wrong. Sam Wu is not the only Chinese character. There's a Chinese doctor he mentions, and he describes him as Dr. Kim or Dr. Suck or Dr. Bum or whatever his name was. Yep, not good. That's a little Ching Chong Ling Wong, you know what I mean? Yeah, That's yeah. no good. <laughs> he describes himself during the war as combing pussy out of his hair. That's oh, yeah, how much he yeah. got laid. That's clearly intentional because he says that to Mary Lee to impress her, and he's immediately shut down as like, you sexist idiot. You think that's impressive to, to say to a woman? It's disgusting. So yeah. that's that's intentional, but I still was like, ooh, that makes me cringe. It's like when I was in high school and I heard a kid in the locker room say I got up in her guts, and I'm like, that's how you describe making love? My God, I never want yeah. to lose my virginity. Yeah, <laughs> I've, heard, I've heard guys say that too. Yeah. yeah, it's no good. Circe is proud of how women are inherently nonviolent. I think even that is reductive. I see it as positive overall, but of course... I'm on board with the whole gender is fluid thing. I'm also super on board with gender is a foundational aspect of your personality, but not the only aspect. Women are allowed to be psycho and violent if they want. You can be a woman asshole, and you can be a very sensitive, peace-loving dude, obviously. So I think his point was well taken, but he pushed it a little far. He really did go like, men bad, women good, which is reductive either way you slice it. Uh, He says explicitly several times, um, gypsies had a reputation b- for being thieving, which I understand is yeah. just calling out a stereotype. Yeah. But then he says in the narration, and we know this was much deserved. He says that it's an, he's like, yeah. I need you to know that that stereotype's true. They do steal a lot. And he makes some reference to like, it's probably because they were so murdered everywhere and so poor that they needed to steal. But the bottom line is gypsies will rob you. <laughs> and I'm like, all right, calm down. <laughs> yeah, I guess I I think I lumped a lot of the racism from Rabo onto being character stuff that Vonnegut didn't believe. But it, some of it repeats other times he's done it and it's kind of gross. Like the cannibal yeah. thing's definitely a Vonnegut thing. And the yeah. lesson the lesson in this book was about sexism, not racism. Like I don't think he learns any lessons about his problematic thoughts on race. So yeah, it's race hard for me to central. believe that yeah. Vonnegut is ever like counterpointing these things. Yeah. Yeah. His last request of his ex-wife to get all of his fabulous wealth when he dies is that his kids have to change their last name back to Karabikian rather than they changed it because they hated his, their upbringing hated so much. Him, yeah. And I'm sorry, you didn't earn that. Uh, you shouldn't be able to buy yeah. that. That's tantamount to denying culpability at being a failed father. And you admitted you were a bad father and that their stepdad was more of a father to them than they will, than you will ever be. They deserve oh, yeah. his last name. Yeah, he's an asshole. You shouldn't yeah. take it back with your big, powerful money. Yeah. They love that guy. Don't make them do that. Yeah, that sucks. Yeah, yeah. It's blackmail of your kids. <laughs> <laughs> and then I, okay, the last thing, which I think is the worst thing is the whole point of their relationship is that it's a romantic comedy, but it's not... Robbo and Cersei. Robbo and Cersei is that it's non-sexualized, right? That's really important to him. He is learning something from a woman who he's treating as his equal. He's not into her ideas because he wants to fuck her. She's not hanging around him because she wants to fuck him. That's really important. Yet, (laughs) this is a line from the book describing Cersei's appearance that to me is like a clumsily written penthouse letter. She came down the staircase. She was overwhelmingly erotic. Her skin-tight cocktail dress was low-cut in front, shamelessly, which I think is an important word, shamelessly displaying her luscious orbs. Luscious orbs is not a phrase that lives up to Vonnegut's standard of writing, in my opinion. Yeah. That's like a porno phrase. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And he's done that with... All the way back to Miss Temptation, short story in Welcome to the Monkey House, where there's a lady who's like 
cruelly pretty and and <laughs> and to and ogled by people in a way that's mean. And like we say, he keeps hanging up on that in general with women, giving that to a character who otherwise is supposed to be like an equal that he finally lets a female be a, a leading person. That's not great. Yeah. <laughs> right. And then the final nail in the coffin to me, which is why I would say you can skip this one, <laughs> is that that you get at this point what the message of the book is and who was supposed to deliver that message, Cersei, and what he was supposed to learn. Nonetheless, the climax of the thing, she sees the painting. They have this deep moment. They're talking about corpses and rapes and shit. Then his description of how their relationship has changed is as follows. He says, I don't think I bedded her, but the painting essentially did. She surrendered her body to it and became languorous in the way of one who has just made love. So I'm going to say that in, a, in different words. I fucked her so good with my painting that she, paint, she art came. Like, <laughs> yeah. why is that the language and the metaphor you go for when the whole thing has been about not objectifying or eroticizing women? This is the point yeah. right after you learned your lesson and your description is, the painting was so good after she looked at it, it looked like she came. I just think you, it's like when you see a movie, we run articles like this, movies that miss the point of their own movie. I think this book does not get the point that it's set out to make. Yeah, and that didn't... kills it for me. <laughs> yeah, he, yeah, he doesn't seem to track it as he wrote it. Totally. Like we said, I don't know. It doesn't spoil it for me. I think, okay. I think he was, he was, as he's admittedly a limited male perspective. I think he was fumbling for a way to make it clear that they'd fully connected as people. And he felt like he had hit all the other emotional stages besides that and was like last one, like just structurally, this makes sense. I guess I feel yeah. like if you're constructing an experiment or treatise on, and you are someone who is keenly aware, obviously of one of the overriding gender dynamics is that men can be sexually aroused by women and vice versa, obviously. Yeah. But our society is set up more for men to act on that impulse and it causes all these situations to unfold. For sure. I would think you'd be smart enough to remove sexuality from this case study of this non-sexual relationship between a man and a woman that teaches the man to not view women as sexual objects. <laughs> Yeah. Don't make the metaphor better. at the end that she came hard to my painting. <laughs> I guess, Yeah, I think it would have been better. I, I don't know why it doesn't completely bug me. Sure, yeah. sure. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I'm, not, I'm softer on it than I sound because yeah. I, I get people's intentions. I would never go to an artist to, and be like, sure, you were trying to paint something about peace and love, but you accidentally painted something that looks like a swastika in the corner. You are a Nazi. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> right, right. I get intention. But we can all be problematic in ways that we're not aware of, even when we're trying to say nice things. Yeah, big time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. which is one of the lessons well, our generation is learning. You don't have to be defensive when someone calls you racist unless you're a fucking Nazi. Everyone has racist structures in their minds, and we're all trying to address that as a team. Yeah. That's all. And yeah. I, I think it's Go team. I think it's good that Vonnegut realized misogyny existed in his time. I think it's Funny that he was unable to fully exercise his own misogynism from his representation of it. Yeah, yeah. In, yeah. in particular, because I think he, <laughs> I think you can see him sweating and pushing a little bit to have. No, this book's just going to have a lot of female characters, and, and they're going to be talk, respectable, and they're yeah. going to be me. You know, they're going to be great. And then he's also mixing in all this retrograde stuff. Too. Well, there's still because there's still women from the mind of a man who's trying his best, but is yeah. not a woman. So obviously, yeah, <laughs> he's yeah, trying yeah. his best. That's all the what's. That was tremendous, man. That was Please. great. Yeah. Thank you for pu pulling all that. That's yeah. Great. It's a lot of virtue signaling in a short period of time. <laughs>
I think that's a bullshit phrase people use to like convince nice people to not be nice. Like well, it's like the phrase, yeah. it's like the term political correctness. Or it's like, white no, knight. you just give a shit. Yeah. Like that's that's I'm not empathetic <laughs> to other people, so you're an asshole for being empathetic. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> I mean, well, and also and I think we probably covered a lot of it, but let's get into a next segment called The Meat. I'm so tired from hating on this book. This is a this is a segment where we get into anything else that's a big theme that we want to pull out of it. Also, I think this is the first time we've done the segment "the meat" in a book that ends with "meat." The is, word "meat" <laughs> is the last word of the, no Karabikian is, it's but it's very, close. It's, it's in the last five meat words. meat-driven book. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know if I have any, any other huge themes to pull out. I think we talked about, um, most of the through line of Vonnegut trying to figure out his own art and whether it matters. There's also, I think it draws on World War II so much because he's, at least in this book, I think realizing that Dresden was such a landmark experience in his life. And then by being a landmark experience in his art, it's sort of became a second landmark experience. You know what I mean? Like he had the experience of Dresden and then he also had the experience of Dresden dominating his art in particular with Slaughterhouse-Five. that his Dresden experience launched his most profitable book of all time, yeah. Yeah, like Dresden kind of kept happening. So him. am I capitalizing on all those deaths? I'm yeah. sure it was complicated emotions. That's why, yeah, one of my questions was, do you believe, it seems clear to me that he has some level of survivor syndrome or must feel guilty about his success for just nailing words together? Or as he says, just putting black spots on pieces of paper. Because I think he has such a theme of his protags ending up fabulously wealthy, but they didn't seem to earn it. Yeah. And money just sloshes around. And it sucks for the people who never get money. But it's also weird for the people who do get the money because they're usually aware that they didn't really earn it. <laughs> and he probably feel, felt that way. Yeah, I think he thought that Slaughterhouse-Five really exercised that event and like completed it for himself. And then he, like you say, he just couldn't get away from, especially that great theme of money keeps coming. In one of his past interviews or letters, I think he talks about how much money he made per victim of Dresden based on Slaughterhouse-Five sales. Like yeah. he just frames it that way. It's he hard. realizes like, That's oh, I made a couple math. bucks on each yeah. body, you know? And I think, I think he, in this book, comes back to and faces that concept that, oh yeah, I keep profiting from that massacre. <laughs> and, that, and that massacre became the best thing in the world for me specifically <laughs> yeah <laughs> like, <laughs> uh yeah he says certainly no one's profited off dresden firebombing more than kurt vonnegut yeah like you can't argue anyone made more money off of it yeah yeah uh, i'm gonna bring up something about the bluebeard myth that i think is pretty neat and then i do have a couple questions so the bluebeard myth connection we already told you the story of the bluebeard myth but i was like there's got to be more to it there's got to be a reason the title is there. And I think it harkens back to The Children's War, which was the subtitle for Slaughterhouse-Five. A Children's Crusade. I'm Children's Crusade. Yeah. And one of his main points, which is that in American movies uh, about war, you always cast 30-year-olds, just like how you cast 30-year-olds to play high school students because yeah. they're better yeah, at, uh, uh, acting. Mary O'Hare picks that out, I think. Right. Book, yeah. And says the problem with that is people who haven't been to war don't realize everyone's fucking like age 17 to 19, the vast majority of. That feels very different. Because yeah. you know how little you knew about the world when you were 18. And you know how crazy it would be to be holding your guts in your hands at 18 versus 35. It's just a different experience. Yeah. So it's important that these wars are fought by children. So I think that's the Bluebeard. I think that's why the book's called Bluebeard. Because specifically in the myth, it's a room full of dead children, child brides. Oh. And 
He Interesting. ultimately reveals that his barn is full of a painting of dead children. Yeah. I think I that's the connection. I think I, I think I had been so gender focused in trying to connect it. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that agent war thing as much. Yeah. That's I, really neat. I think, yeah, the reason it's Bluebeard specifically is anyone who dies in war is a child in his mind. Yeah. Um, had you ever heard, I had never heard of the Bluebeard fairy tale before I read this. No, I thought he was a famous pirate or something. Yeah, me too. Yeah. yeah it sounds like Blackbeard or something. <laughs> right, yeah, right. Yeah. 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 Um, but yeah, nope. so that was interesting. But apparently, it's well known, and uh, apparently, Vonnegut drew on the one by Charles Perrault, like that guy's uh, yeah. retelling. All right, so let me ask you some questions. Yeah, this is just a quick ranking. Uh, let's play Mary Fuck Kill okay. with Dwayne Hoover, Rob Okarabikian, and guy from Mother Night. <laughs> oh, Howard Campbell. Howard Campbell. Yeah. All right. So <laughs> one was trying to be a good guy, but turned out to be a Nazi. One has bad chemicals in his brain, so it's not necessarily his fault, Dwayne Hoover. But he ends up like beating and maiming all his loved ones and driving his wife to suicide. And then Rob Okarabikian is a, like a self-centered sexist asshole who hoards his mansion. Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, let's do it. Let's do another fun I'm connection. I'm saying who's the least likable Kurt Vonnegut protagonist, essentially. And I'm going with Robbo. I really hate his guts. Oh, I think Howard Campbell is probably the most sympathetic to me, if I have to pick one. That's very illuminating to me. So you do care about intentions. Yeah. And yeah. I, but you, I, like, you can lay way more deaths at his feet than either of the other two. <laughs> that's... There's some truth to that. I mean, there's probably mathematical truth to that. This is a question yeah. that these keep me up at night. <laughs> well, what is evil? Is it what you do or what you try to do? Obviously. Yeah. yeah. What are you culpable for? Well, because Dwayne Hoover also seems like a jerk to me, even beyond his mental illnesses that are beyond his control. Sure. And Robbo seem well although i'd argue that we never even know what Dwayne is like not mentally ill i don't think yeah. i've seen a scene of him not mentally ill it's yeah he's I, always mentally ill i walk back the campbell thing i have sympathy for karabikian too and i also and that bands of light concept might be my favorite thing in vonnegut as we do which is weird so it's hard I hate to be so much <laughs> yeah and so even though even though breakfast of champions says it is breakfast champions makes clear Bands of Light is an amazing idea, and Karabikian is an asshole at the same time. And sure. artists can be that way. At the same time, I like I like Karabikian a little bit for putting that together. You know? Right. I know Vonnegut put it together, yeah, yeah, but, but he lets Karabikian do it. And More yeah, questions. that's a really hard, hard <laughs> and cool question. Also, no, one yeah. one weird parallel to get into with the, those three guys. Mother Night, Howard Campbell is a playwright. And before that in life, Vonnegut tried to write plays on Cape Cod, mm -hmm. and then he continued to after the book. Then uh, Dwayne Hoover is a car dealer. In real life, Vonnegut tried to be a Saab car dealer in real life to make some money for his family. And then in real life, uh, a lot of people know Kurt Vonnegut did some visual art. Oh, I know where you're and, going uh, with this. And Karabikian oh. is a visual artist. Before that, Kurt Vonnegut was a visual artist. He had oh, done a gallery Kurt. show or two in New York, and he would go on to do that later on. Some, some editions of his books have Kurt's line drawings on them. So all three of those characters are other jobs that Kurt dabbled in. That and makes then wrote me into so novels. sad, see? You're too hard on yourself, Kurt. Yeah. I would argue then that from like a analytical standpoint, Kurt intentionally or unintentionally made the characters that most resemble him the most flawed and hard to like. And that, oh, that yeah, says absolutely. something about self-loathing and depression that I think is very real, yeah. Yeah, I think I think it's... Well, a lot of... In comedy, you keep coming upon the idea of... And by you, I mean everybody comes upon the idea of put the joke on yourself. You know, like Jack yep. Benny was one of my is one of my favorite comedians forever because he always did that. There's tons of other examples. Yeah, but like, and I even think the ones like Colbert who are being super arrogant. The underlying joke is that they're dumb and they don't deserve to be that arrogant. It's always yeah. self denigrating in the end. Like that Colbert character. Though. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, 
And so I think he makes the... He's said before in other books that he doesn't really write villains, but when he makes characters villainous, I think he tries to make him the villain. If he wants to examine a flaw, he gives it to himself. Yeah. It's like the fairest thing to do. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, I do that in personal situations, I think. I'll take blame that's not mine. I do think that's a hallmark of a self-loathing person. I'm fairly self-loathing. Spoiler. (laughs) (laughs) People didn't know that yet. Uh, Total tears of a clown guy. That's true. (laughs) True story. I'm depressed most of the time. Hi, everyone. Yeah. (laughs) As are many of us. As are, as I've found out, a lot of my comedian friends. Yeah. Grapple, yeah. All right, next question. I love asking questions. Oh, man. Uh, This is a quickie, but do you think that Paul and he both only have one eye because they have a limited perspective and then by the end they have their better? I don't know. Yeah. Like, why are they cyclopses? The two (laughs) men are cyclopses and all the women have two eyes. I just thought that might be something. Well, I, yeah, also in reading it, I felt a little bit like there might have been a way to write this without Paul Slazinger being in it. Like, it, I didn't it felt need like, him at all, yeah. I, I, I always think of that one, uh, I think it's Blinkett, like that Phantom Menace review, which has a lot of gross things about it. But he finds a thing where they didn't need Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon Jinn. It could have just been Obi-Wan. You know, which is absolutely accurate. Yeah. And th- they might have been able to just bake Slazinger's stuff into other characters. He felt kind of ancillary. Or into the narration, like Robbo could have had those thoughts, yeah. Yeah. Do you think he did a good job of what he set out to, or one of the things he promised to do in the author's note, which is critique the silly amount of money that's paid for high art? Because I felt like yes, you do. Okay, what makes you feel that way? I think he. I think there's another book where he says that high art has become a coded language that rich people use to make poor people feel stupid. Right, and he says that at so the I beginning of this that. book, but yeah. I didn't think he followed through with any of the plot points because, like I said, oh, Rabo yeah. is totally more than willing to make money off of his art, even money that he thinks is more than the art is worth, even by selling it to companies that he says are part of the industrial military complex ruining the world. Right. It seems so hollowly hypocritical. <laughs> it's weird to me. Like you already live in a mansion. You don't need more money. So why do you sell that to Gefco? <laughs> well, there's also, I think there's one bit in the book and this, I just said they don't need Slazenger, but this is a good Slazenger idea mm. where he talks about white collar crime and about rich people who are just endlessly trying to get richer. And Slazenger comes up with the concept that we need to have a money hall of fame. Mm-hmm. And so then people can get put in the money hall of fame once they've gotten very rich. And his hope is that like once they get that hall of fame plaque, then they'll stop needing more they'll money stop and they'll stop the crushing world everybody. Because we gave them the validation they need. Yeah. yeah. Like, give yeah. them a trophy. Say you did it. You're the richest person, even if it's a lie. Yeah. Maybe they'll stop hoarding all the resources from everyone. Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, th- I think he says Rabo ought to be in there, as like, among other things. Well, Rabo. no, he says he should be in the hall of dumb luck money because yeah, dumb luck for money. people yeah, who yeah. got rich specifically through no fault of their own. <laughs> like, you didn't earn it at all. Every choice you made was bad, just like me, but I'm poor and you're rich. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, they even make Rabo inherit part part ownership of the Cincinnati Bengals. Rabo doesn't care about football. Was and not that's aware like they're a football team. team. Someone <laughs> had to explain. Slazinger goes like, that's my favorite football team. He's yeah. like, oh, it's a football team. Cool. I own them. It's like, <laughs> yeah. I hate you and I hate life. <laughs> I wondered why he likens, he repeatedly likens all of the true geniuses while they're doing their art to being a zombie or unplugged. Like he treats it as a tragedy. And that seemed weirdly out of place to me. Like he said, I'm really happy that Terry Kitchen was able to create beautiful art. But the second he found that spray rig, 
for me, it felt like my best friend, there was nobody home ever again. His eyes were vacant and he only cared about art. And he says, my dad, towards the end of his life, started making boots that were highly decorative instead of just being a cobbler who fixed shoes. And the second he became artistic, he was like a zombie. He was empty inside. He likens it to a drug trip. He says, like, when I'm painting and I I know I'm doing a good painting, my brain is gone. I don't know where I am. It's creepy to me. Why do you think he made being connected to the muse a scary melancholy thing in this book yeah i think and i think this is something that ties together the exploring art and exploring women in the world but it seems like a in this world it seems like a sacrifice to make art it takes something out of you in a way or something um i don't know if sacrifice is the right word uh i think he i think kurt vonnegut consciously or not is is expressing in this book the idea that he in his life feels like he's devoured woman after woman in the process mm-hmm. of being him and that other men do that too. And uh, like this book comes out the year after Jane Vonnegut dies in life. Uh, and overall, I think he in part sees his fixation on writing all of the time and, and becoming the greatest author he can be as something that made him a worse partner, worse father, person who cast women aside in the process of his life. So that like so that like hollowed zombie-ish kind of thing, I think he's expressing like that he felt that he became a, a writing bot at some point. And then and then in ah. the process of that, he might also be forgiving himself a bit sure. by doing that. But which like may if, not be fair. If but. your passion for your your passion for career can become so overwhelming that you yeah. have no time to be nurturing to the real people in your life. Sure. Yeah. It's sort of a it reminds untrue. me of a, it reminds me of the shining. Like if, ah. if you take Jack Torrance really literally, he's like being a monster in order to get writing time. You know, yeah, like yeah. he's he's being cold and distant and cruel to get it enough time to bang out a novel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, and my last question that cleared that up. Thank you. Oh, sure. Is uh, no, I, yeah. can you really call it a solid argument explaining why abstract expressionism works and is valuable? When he ends up deciding to paint something representational and like he, uh, Rabo lives his whole life in pursuit of abstraction, but in the end, the only thing he can do that's meaningful is a direct photographic representation. And even when he was painting abstract art, he lets us know in his mind, it is concretely representational. (laughs) Like the tape is deer and the color is the stream. That, yeah, that, in what sense is his art even abstract? <laughs> yeah, of of all the things for me to bump on, I was frustrated by uh, the book. Kind of argues that either either abstract expressionism doesn't mean much, or at least Rabo's doesn't specifically. But I, I feel like that art's meaningful to me. It works for me. It does work for me, and I so think I, he I, elucidates he elucidates well why it is meaningful, which is to say. There is meaning in the feeling you get, whatever it is, yeah. just looking at a big red square with a purple square on it, to, to paraphrase a famous Rothko. Um, <laughs> yeah. It doesn't mean a thought, but it means whatever feeling you get. Like, it still does something to your neurons. That's all it meant. And he says, the whole point of abstract expressionism is it only means whatever it is. So that painting of a red square only means red square. And maybe you're saying, well, that's not as meaningful as a painting of a a child dying in the gutter. Okay. I mean, sure, it doesn't stir as many concrete thoughts about the world, but it still did something. You looked at it and you felt different than when you weren't looking at it. Um, But then I just think he chickens out by making Rabo essentially a representational painter. (laughs) Yeah. My most charitable reading of it is that he is affirming that abstract expressionism is right. And he's also being self-loathing by making the one painter who's him 
bad like bad at it and only only direct about like it. he you know really I mean? can't do it he can't un he can't disengage his thoughts enough to do what pollock does or what kitchen does right yeah he's saying like people who are not me the worst person in the world <laughs> do wonderful work through abstract expressionism right. yeah and i am a piece of shit who can only draw what i see and pretend it's abstract expressionism at best yeah 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 thanks uncle oh, alex great. you fixed no. the, you fixed all my questions that's great <laughs> i wish I, I wish i had more i feel like i feel like you especially in vanuat broke down a lot of what I would like to know about what you think, especially about being frustrated by the book. Sure. Yeah. 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 Well, I've been wearing my heart on my sleeve this time. Yeah. I didn't like it. I appreciate its intentions, but I didn't think it accomplished what it set out to accomplish. And like you now, I like aliens and robots. It, it's just a romantic comedy set in the present day. Michael's bound to fall off. <laughs> yeah. That's true. There's nothing. Nothing. Fantastical, metaphysical. It's nothing. all artists nope. being artists. Yep. And monsters and yep. everything else. <laughs> Lame. Yawn. <laughs> uh, let's get into it. We only have a few segments left, and mm-hmm. uh, one of them is a segment called Kurt Vonna Grades. I wondered when this would come up. It's time. It's time. I bet time, you can guess time. what I'll say. <laughs> this is, if you haven't heard the show, Kurt Vonnegut in his book Palm Sunday graded himself relative to himself. We have worked through all of the actual grades Vonnegut gave himself, including an extra grade he did for the book after Palm Sunday, Dead Eye Dick. We did our own Vonnegut comparison less grades for our previous book, Galapagos. And now let's do them for Bluebeard. Uh, uh, I know where you fall in a general way on this one, but what uh, letter grade do you think you'd give it? D plus, because it's still a Vonnegut. But I hope it stands as my lowest grade on this whole show. Can you check? You have a list there. Is there anything I gave approaching that? I think there might be Um, a C somewhere. You actually, you also gave a D plus to Palm Sunday. Yeah, that uh, makes sense. Fine. Yeah. No, you know what? Then I'm going to make this a D minus because it's not a failure. Vonnegut, I don't think has ever fully failed, but uh, it's even more boring to me than Palm Sunday was. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. I, this is disparate. I think I would give it an A. Wow. <laughs> I didn't expect that even by recording this. It didn't sound like you liked it that much. I did, yeah. And there's people on the Facebook who are like, I'm so excited for you guys to read this one. It's my favorite one. And I'm like, what are you even talking about? Yeah. <laughs> well, because, uh, yeah, a few things with that. I For one, this is the first time I've read this book. This is one of the ones that's new to me, which is exciting. So maybe that spikes my grade a little bit just because it's all fresh. Uh, and also, we this it's from openculture.com, so I don't know how sourced it is. But there's a list of the most stolen books from bookstores that somebody did. And there are four Vonnegut's on it, and this one's one of them. Mm-hmm. And it feels like a real outlier. The other ones were more famous. Like Slaughterhouse-Five, Mother yeah. Night, whatever, yeah. And uh, and I in seeing that, I was like, Bluebeard? What? Bluebeard? It doesn't make sense. Yeah. And I think it's really tight and really res- – so a lot of the resonant things in it are so meaningful. And so interesting to me. I think he accomplishes the Breakfast of Champions kind of thing where he does a book that is about his own art, but is mainly about more. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it 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 has le- it leaves me with a lot of things that I'm going to think about quite a bit. It focuses on the my favorite thing of people being bands of light, you know, neon tubes yes. of light. And I don't know. I, I, I think it really, really works. But also giving it an A, I'm still putting it below... Uh, a few other books in particular, Sirens and Breakfast of Champions and Cat's Cradle. Mm. Uh, but otherwise, that is it's a strong triumvirate. Up, but yeah. otherwise, it's up there with like Slaughterhouse for me. Yeah. Well, good. Great. I'm glad you got that out of it. Art can be yeah. whatever you get out of it, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> I would have given it an A if it were 
the same sequence of events written by Margaret Atwood about Mary Lee Kemp instead of written by Vonnegut about Caribbean. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I also, I picked that A before we taped. Uh, a minus, because that is dead on. Like, I was able to rain on your parade. <laughs> <laughs> and as I say, it, as I said that, it's not as good as Slaughterhouse-Five. That's that's a stretch. <laughs> so you're going to, yeah, shade it down a hair just to keep yeah. Slaughterhouse I gave, I gave Galapagos an A minus as well. I think it's I think it's around there where like Galapagos has some flaws, but also some stuff that is yeah. some of my favorite Vonnegut things. I can accept that. I don't agree, but we, I can accept it. A minus. Yeah. yeah. Well, good. Now we now we've rated it, and uh, let's do. We only have a couple more things left. Let's do a segment called Movie Time. Action! Roll, 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 oh wait, roll, roll, lights? Roll, roll, no camera. Roll. I'm messing this all up. Where's the boom? Act, and then we'll get lights, and then and then <laughs> we'll bring in the camera. No, that's not right either. <laughs> so this is uh, this is a segment we do some of the time where we talk about the existing movie version of the Vonnegut work and or our own version that we do. There is not a movie of Bluebeard, but IMDb says there's going to be one in 2018. Oh. It is a very, very spare page. It just says that someone named Craig Kazarian, who doesn't have a lot of other credits that I could find, is writing a script. And it's obviously based on the novel. Um, and it's in pre-production. So maybe there's just a thumb on IMDb and it sure, means nothing. That's, that's still well in the territory of like, could be lost in production limbo or whatever. Yeah, yeah. like this guy might have made a page, but I don't know, the concept's yeah, out there. he optioned the rights. Someone yeah. did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and also it seems like this is a book that could live as a movie. I don't see any massive issues with turning it into one. You know, like Galapagos mm. Vonnegut wrote in that, yeah, this chunk where there's weird, creepy sexual assault and insemination, that makes it not a movie. This mm. one, eh, I guess it's a movie, right? Yeah. Yeah. It can be filmed, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll give it that. It contains only things that could be depicted in film. Well done. <laughs> yeah, and we were going to talk. I, we can probably keep it brief, but uh, sure. uh, any any director casting or things. Absolutely, to yeah. I did my due diligence, even though I don't care. So yeah, I'll do mine first. Yeah, I didn't do young and old, even though it jumps through time. I just picked for the older cast because I do see this as like a Nancy Myers movie set at the beach house primarily with some brief flashbacks. So I would make Robbo, Ben Kingsley. I'd go. uh, Oh, that's great, actually. Yeah. Oh, man. I already made the Harvey P. Carr connection, so you can predict. Paul Slazinger would be Giamatti. Yeah, that'd be great. Cersei, Jennifer Jason Leigh. Oh, and I'm that's gonna fold into my related reading because I'm particularly thinking of Hudsucker Proxy Jennifer Jason Lee, Terry Kitchen, Sam Rockwell. He's my fits any role guy that I throw in. <laughs> um, Allison, I'd do Octavia Spencer and Celeste, her daughter. I I hope I'm not butchering this, but Kuvenzane Wallace from Beasts of the Southern oh, Wild. Yeah, I, who's I now know. the right age to play. I just thought she was great for a child actor and she's the right age to play Celeste now. And yeah, then yeah. Mary Lee Kemp, in my opinion, the central role actually. That's, uh, that's so fascinating. Would be played by Krusty's <laughs> assistant from The Simpsons. B+. B+. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. No, you know the uh, but but I do think that's Update her Update for listeners is now a B+. Plus. Oh. It's it's just so it should be a Mary Lee Kemp book. Why Retro is it not a Mary Lee Kemp downgrade. book? Dang okay. it. Anyway. Well, you glossed right over my joke I'm answer. I'm sorry, everyone did. Which is Krusty Clown's assistant should play Marilee Clown <laughs> because of her uh, loyalty to Dan Gregorian. But my real answer, and then I'm done... The movie should be about Mary Lee Kemp, and Mary Lee Kemp should be Frances McDormand. End of story. Oh, yeah. Yeah, duh. Adapted by John Swartzwelder of Simpsons fame. 
Directed by James L. Brooks, of yeah. L. Brooks, also of Simpsons Connections, but also many other film, great films. Because again, I do think, or give it to Nancy Meyer, I think of it as a movie like As Good As It Gets or Something's Gotta Give. At least all the parts I actually liked were in the present and about that kind of thing. That's really cool. So I'd go Nancy Meyer, James L. Brooks, let George Meyer and John Swartzwelder have at it. It'll at least be funny. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Sounds really good. <laughs> I have I have a brief one because I uh, it's more of an overall concept. I would like to see this as as a movie made in like the mid twentieth century. I want this to be like a black and white film made by people who are deceased now, because a few of them jump out to me. Really, a talkie yeah. or pre? Yeah, talkie. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, this is a great concept, and I know I that this. is anachronistic because it's about art that a lot of it happens after that time. Uh, but I think uh, I would want Preston Sturgis to direct it. Wow. Because I think he's choice. very good at like epic journeys and also still having jokes in it and also kind of having an adventure with it. And I see a lot of vibe overlap with Nancy Meyer's work, honestly. Like, yeah, I could see him as, like, yeah, he likes quirky human stories about people learning things. They talk fast. It's funny. It's light. Yeah. Great yeah. choice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then you can you can make uh, Bogart Rabo Karabikian. Because, like, he's he's good at messed up in that way, yeah. you know? Like, yeah, yeah, like yeah. he can be a, a likable yet unlikable person in nice. a very effective way. And then I was thinking for, we can do Mary Lee Kemp. I was thinking Lee Remick. And then uh, uh, Cersei Berman, Patricia Neal. They're both in different movies. Patricia Neal's in one called A Face in the Crowd. I know it's her. Amazing. I don't know. What was the other person? I don't know her. Uh, Lee Remick. Lee Remick. Do you know any classic movies she was in? No, they're actually... So they're both... Patricia Neal and Lee Remick are both in a movie called A Face in the Crowd, which is an amazing movie. It's about a... It's Andy Griffith doing a heel turn. He plays a country entertainer who basically works his way up to being almost a dictator of the country. Wow. Like, like using comedy, media though? for evil. It's very dark. It's very oh, sad. okay. Yeah. So yeah, it's yeah. A, like it was a real artistic departure for him at the yeah. time. Yeah. 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 Cool. He, he full, he like uses his likable Americanness for evil. Right. And it's phenomenal. That's great. And Lee Remick and Patricia Neal are both women who kind of get run over by it in, in, in uh, the movie. Uh-huh. And it feels like a fit for. I, I, it's that very amateur work of casting where I'm like, oh, I saw someone do that exact role. They should do it again. But I think they could both do it. Nice. And they would both fit yeah. the ladies. And those are kind of the key characters to me. I didn't go much further than that. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't have a lot to say, so I cast everyone to fill time. <laughs> like Celeste and Allison, I just picked talent as actors. It doesn't really matter yeah, <laughs> who, yeah. who plays them. Yeah. <laughs> But I think you could, because I think that those older, that older style would fit the making a movie about paintings sure. and also making a movie about people. It's it's such a era specific abstract expressionism, New York in this time, yeah. America going from where it was at the start of the century to the end of the century. Of course. It, it's, uh, there are people to do it. Featuring yeah. Fatty Arbuckle as Paul Slazinger. <laughs> yeah, or something. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. Sydney Greenstreet could yeah, be in the movie. Stan Laurel as yeah. <laughs> Sears Berman. That's a weird choice. <laughs> <laughs> but obviously part of it's set in the 80s, and I'm cheating. Sure. But it all doesn't work. <laughs> but like we said, no, it could totally work. Like, we're so postmodern now, you could absolutely make that version and no one would bat an eye. I guess so, yeah. You can make a movie that clearly looks like a movie from the 30s that references... 9-11 like no one would be like yeah how does that make sense it's just art you just do whatever you want now <laughs> yeah <laughs> i like it cool i do like well, that in a way we've become so postmodern that it does put the pressure on you kind of have to have something to say yeah there should be a, a thing yeah I <laughs> or i feel like or uh, you mean like something to say like a reason to make bluebeard a movie at all 
No, like, I mean, art today that's purely textural has a lot of competition. Like, if the only oh, yeah. thing you bring to the table is you paint random splotches of color, but they look really awesome, uh, that used to be that used to make you incredibly unique. Now, you have just as stiff competition as if you were a representational painter. It's not like a free yeah. career pass, which yeah. to me is great, because now that everyone makes everything and there's st- stiff competition everywhere, it's gone back to it kind of matters that you have something real to say or so, at least yeah. something visually interesting that is a real exploration of a visual trope or something. Uh, if all you do is throw colors at the wall and it's derivative and it just happens to look cool, you're not going to succeed just because it looks cool. Right. Which I like. That's really cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Well, and speaking of movies, let's get into a segment called Related Reading. Read, read, read. Speaking of flip, movies, flip, flip. let's flip, flip, read. Read, read, read. You did not hear that wrong, folks. <laughs> it was the clumsiest segue hey. of all time. <laughs> hey, that's not a song or whatever. <laughs> no. Not even a whatever. <laughs> but I, this is where we talk about books and also other media. That oh, reminds us true. of the book. And we were talking about Coen Brothers a lot, and I, I have a Coen Brothers movie among my things. As do I. Great. Coincidence. Yeah. Great. Because uh, one of mine was Inside Lewin Davis that we talked about before. And it's a relatively recent movie by them. I think it was like 2013, something like it's that. It's definitely the best of their last like three or four. It's the standout. It's really great. Yeah. And yeah. it's uh, where I found out who Oscar Isaac is. And it's a story about... It's sort of like this book where this book's a very specific look at a art movement in New York City in the middle of the 20th century. And it's about the folk scene in New York City, like right before Bob Dylan gets to town and and about people creating folk music in the village and, and trying to figure out life. But it's also really about this one frustrated, not top level artist who's uh, struggling with being a human and also being a, an artist and everything else yeah. he wants to be. Loosely based on Dave Van Ronk, or yeah. at least his body of music and his work is loosely based on, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, who is a, a great folk artist you probably haven't heard of, and that's why it's one of the points Same, of the movie. Yeah, I hadn't heard of him until I saw I'd him. heard of him because my uncle runs a folk label and oh, educated cool. me about folk, but, um, but you shouldn't have heard of him, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and I loved, if you are going to give it a watch, especially if you've never watched it before, you're going to watch it again. It's one of my favorite Coens, and Coens are my favorite. Deeply meaningful to me because it's yeah. about art. And I just want to—I want people to be invited to watch it through this lens, which is exactly like you said, but there's a particular like phraseology that always makes it resonate with me, which is anyone can make a movie about Bob Dylan and his rise to fame, and it's totally warranted. He's yeah. a great artist. But for every Bob Dylan, there are so many people who are just as inspired have just as much pain to express, can express it just as well, have just as beautiful a soul. But we don't have the bandwidth. Not everyone can be Bob Dylan. So let's make a movie about the person who's just as talented and is going to end in the gutter or quit folk music. And that's a harsh truth that artists need to understand. (laughs) And it's an amazing depiction of it. Well, Actually, one of my readings of it is that it's about how people's choices will prevent them from getting to be Bob Dylan too. You know, I think he makes a lot of mistakes that then build on each other or in a lack way that of gets out of his control. That's I yeah. I have never before broken into tears because a character decided not to take an exit off the freeway. You know what scene I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Literally a decision of omission. He just keeps driving straight and going where they're supposed to go. Yeah. Is devastating to you in context. It's a great movie. It's, it's very sad, so but there's so much meaning packed into it. Yeah. yeah. Plus, just great music. Great. And the music throughout is 
some of the finest folk covers ever put to film, certainly. Yeah. Like, it's the best folk anthology soundtrack ever. Other than arguably Oh Brother, which is, again, (laughs) like, (laughs) Coens and Tarantino know how to, what music to play, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I will briefly recommend The Hudsucker Proxy to see what I meant about Jennifer Jason Lee playing Sears, but also to see probably the most underrated Coen Brothers movie. Of all the people I know who love the Coen Brothers, Almost everyone's seen all of them except The Man Who Wasn't There and The Hudsucker Proxy. That's me, actually. And The Man Who Wasn't There is decent, but I see why people skip it. The Hudsucker Proxy is like in their top three movies. It's supposed to be, yeah. I I don't know. And if you like uh, Tim Robbins, it's his best performance, hands down. Steve Buscemi's great in it. Paul Newman gives one of the best performances of his career in it. It is... It is shot in the style of a Preston Sturgis or like 20s, 30s movie. That's explicitly what they were going for. Jennifer Jason Lee is doing a Kate Hepburn impersonation. Cool. So it's like, it's a zany madcap comedy. It's their love letter to that era of movies like Laurel and Hardy and shit. And it's fucking incredible. <laughs> like it's the most delightful movie they'll ever make, especially now that they only make movies about the meaninglessness of life. Right. Um, but this was uh, back when they were so making good. cheerful shit like yeah. Ray Arizona and Hudsucker. Oh, that's, that's also good. And I think the name really <laughs> kills it because the Hudsucker proxy is like terrible name. Terrible yeah. name. It sounds like a documentary. You wonder what it's going to be about. You don't need to know. Watch it. It's delightful from beginning to end. It is like compulsively watchable. It's one of the movies I've seen a hundred times probably in my life. Wow. It's never not fun to watch. And I wouldn't say that about A Serious Man. I wouldn't say that about True Grit. Right. Fucking watch The Hudsucker Proxy, you goons. <laughs> I will. I will. I Good. will. <laughs> All right. What do you yeah. got? What else you got? Let's do uh, – I also have a TV episode mm. specifically. Uh, and it's it's a very – direct pull it's not it's not a huge leap but it's season two episode seven of mad men it's called the gold violin and one of the running things in the episode is that uh, Bert cooper gets a rothko and then gets rid of the rothko and the reasons are fascinating and uh the overall right. and and mad men i th- i think i haven't rewatched it lately but i think it's a show where obviously the seeing them all in continuity is great but i think the episodes stand on their own and if you just want to sample the show and check it out i think so that show is yeah. more about scene work than yeah. what's going to happen next yeah right right and it among other things has a really really cool interesting statement about that kind of art just like this book yeah does. i remember why i thought of sterling i think it's because in the episode he's the only person who's like easily accepts it and doesn't have a problem with it yeah he's like <laughs> besides cooper he's knowing, like, yeah, yeah yeah he's like i get it it's cool and people are like why though explain it to me why it's important or should be paid for he's like i don't know i just get it I, it looks fine to me yeah I <laughs> like which that. is especially Whereas funny cooper himself feels the need to explain analytically why he would spend so much money on this and it's important yeah. sterling's like you don't even have to explain it it's just a square but i like it it's pretty yeah <laughs> <laughs> which is also it's almost him he's he's almost a very think with meat not soul character you know yes. like he has depths and yeah. so it's great a use of him to be like yeah i get it sure <laughs> to be like no big problem. Everyone else, yeah. like half of the office is like, I don't, the world is, doesn't make sense to me anymore because now these count as paintings. Right. And he's like, people can paint whatever they want. I don't care. Give me another <laughs> martini. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. And if you love TV, you should see Mad Men. It's just yeah. excellent. Yeah. Um, all I have left, well, I have two left, but I'll do them at once. I have two too. There's a play that's referenced. A Doll's House by Henrik Ibsen. And it's oh, yeah. clear that he references it because it's a very seminal work, 
as far as women's rights goes, it's yet another another white rich man writing about how hard he thinks it would be to be a woman. <laughs> so in, by modern standards, it's not like as progressive as some of the stuff we we tout today is. But I but he's still a great playwright. He's still very insightful to the human spirit, and I think he said a lot of valuable things. And I think he said things that would resonate with women. <laughs> um, and A Doll's House is about a character, Nora coming to grips with the particular boundaries on her life that are related to her being a woman, rebelling against that. The final climactic act is, you know, an act of wresting her freedom from the patriarchy. So it's a great spiritual twin. It's a really fun read. Uh, When I was assigned it in school, I enjoyed it very much. Yeah. So I'd say go ahead and read A Doll's House. It's great. Henrik Ibsen. It's one of the great plays. Yeah. Yeah. It reminded me of another play just because I was taught the both plays at the same time in school, so they're linked in my mind. But it also is about women not only being oppressed, but the power they have to control those around them that are unique to women as well. So it's more of a man versus woman energy, and there's negotiating happening. It's not just, look how sad it is for women. And that's The Homecoming by Harold Pinter. Uh, Oh, yeah. yeah. Which is a great play that is very vague and, and sort of abstract and sort of not. But it's like about a woman coming home with her fiance and it's unclear whether she's going to be forced into prostitution by the abusive father or she's manipulating them all against each other using her sexuality. And it just does a good job of it's really fucked up and dark, but it examines obviously this is not all of what it is to be male or female, but how females can use things that are unique to female to control men and men can use the things that are unique to men, like on the whole, I'm stronger than you and you're scared of that to control women. That's really cool. Um, So yeah, two good gender identity plays that read kind of similar and were both assigned to me in high school. (laughs) No, yeah. I mean, read those playwrights if you never had. They're both great playwrights. Yeah. Pinter's famous for the Pinter pause. Yeah. Which is uh, every pause in his plays is very meaningful. Like it gives a lot of information to the actors, especially. Yeah. And I think inspired Mammoth. So if you like a lot of Mammoth, if you like Glengarry, Glenn Ross, Pinter is some, one of the precursors of Mammoth. For sure. Yeah. yeah. Kind of related. Uh, a novel to recommend called Amsterdam. It's by Ian McEwan. And he's most famous for writing Atonement, I think, which okay, was made sure. a movie. Yeah. Um, Amsterdam is one that is about a couple of rich white guys having problems. One of them is a composer. One of them is a newspaper editor. And then also there's a third man. And then there's their past relationships and past loves. And it makes that really compelling and really interesting. While as I read it, I felt like it also never congratulated them on being rich white men. Like you still get the sense that they're kind of jerks. Uh, And it's just a really good piece of dramatic writing that also builds to a final conclusion on a final confrontation in a way that's usually pretty hard to do with just rich white guys being upset. Usually there's not a yes. chase to the finish, but kind of like Bluebeard, there's a chase to the finish of not the art, not an art mystery in Amsterdam, but that kind of thing. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and again, I'm not like a knee jerk bleeding heart PC dude. Like, okay, here's a good example. Sopranos. Yeah. <laughs> rich dude who passes as white, obviously has Italian cultural heritage, but in the 20th century in America, that's basically white. Right. Um, it used to be a problem for you if you were an Italian-American, but uh, I think there's nothing that I that can't resonate with me about a person who happens to be rich, white, and male, especially if their problems are real and his were real. He didn't understand that all the poor choices based on violence he keeps making are why he's so unhappy. 
anything can be compelling. But yeah. there's a sub-sub-genre of rich white dudes with problems that are objectively not a big deal. Like, yeah. no one's going to die. Nothing bad is really going to happen. And it just becomes annoying. Or it's hard to resonate if you have any kind of real shit going on in your life or f- lives of friends of yours. Like, I mean, with all this DACA stuff, right? It's harder <laughs> for me to watch Right. Uh, the or Notebook or The Lake House. Four hurricanes happening at once. And, and Super Care. Yeah, yeah <laughs> right, all. right. Uh, yeah, so it's that kind of thing. Like, yeah. it's it's not on that level, but it is compellingly done. And, and he's a really good writer. He's If you haven't Absolutely. read Atonement either, it's it's excellent. I just yeah. don't want people to think, I don't understand white dudes have problems. Like, everyone's oh, problems sure. are huge in their own life. Yeah, we're all fighting a battle. I think yeah. unless you're a hateful idiot, you understand what we're saying. Like yeah. the kind of people who will hear this and write to us, you're narrow-minded or shitty, are narrow-minded and shitty. So I don't even know why I'm trying to explain yeah. it to them. They probably don't even exist. It'll probably be fine. Probably, yeah. <laughs> and yeah oh, just one more. Uh, this came up on our From the Group episode recently. It's a short story called They're Made of Meat by Terry Bisson. And it's uh, just a really excellent piece. It's about aliens who are not carbon-based like we are coming upon earth and being grossed out that we're all made of meat because we are it's it's a mm. just funny science straight up science fiction short story i think most of our other related stuff is about like white people in new york sure. and stuff. this is just a, just about that meat concept that he hits so hard in bluebeard yeah yeah like all... i like that uh and that's just about perception that's cool it's yeah. a two-way street i like in ender's game the buggers who are like the main enemy and our insectoid call us something like slimes or oozes where the or where the slips or the slipperies um because of course if you were a bug it would be gross to you that we have like soft skin with moisture that oozes out of it yeah they're like that's weird i like a nice clean exoskeleton i'm like that's cool that makes sense yeah <laughs> they think humans are gross taste, looking man. yeah yeah <laughs> Yeah, and off of reading to do, let's get into, I believe, the final segment called Vonnegut News. That's his belief, but little does he know there's five more segments before we end the show. No! Uh, there's a lot of Vonnegut news going on in the world. Oh, boy. Uh, look up The Atlantic, if you've never heard of it. They published a until then, unpublished Vonnegut short story. It's called The Drone King, and it's from the early 50s when he was just getting started. And it's also going to be included in a full sort of omnibus collection of all of Kurt Vonnegut's stories. I think it's called Complete Stories that comes out September 26th. So you We're can get all of his short stories in a row. New Vonnegut. New Kurt Vonnegut. Fresh Vonnegut, hot off of the tombstone, <laughs> hot off yeah. the grave. <laughs> like it's, it almost should have been the headline of the episode. Like there's extra stuff now. You yeah, can go see it. There's bonus yeah. scenes, and yes, <laughs> we made it happen by doing this podcast. You're, You're welcome. welcome. Yeah, we did it. <laughs> I am the Drone King. <laughs> That's what Jim Morrison used to say, right? Yeah, is that a Doors thing? I don't know the Doors. A oh, Lizard King. Lizard King. Ah, sorry. you got there. Yeah. Uh, and then the only other, uh, there's another thing in September, the 20th anniversary of the publication of Timequake, the final Kurt Vonnegut novel, is September 22nd of this year. It ah. came out in 97. So uh, I think a couple days after this episode drops, it's Timequake's 20th, baby. And clam bake. Yeah, now you'll know when this podcast is wrapping up, Timequake. That's the end, right? <laughs> uh, is that have... our end point or do we have any essay collections after that? Yeah, after that essay collection. Okay, so. gotcha. Yeah, we still okay. got to wait. Cool. Yeah. Good. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, that completes all of our Vonnegut news, I think. Uh, the next episode of the show is going to be about a novel called Hocus Pocus, bringing us into 1990. 
Wow. Yeah. The future of the past. My girlfriend had never heard that phrase in re- in relation to magicians. And she was like, is that a racial slur? Is that like an old racial slur? And I'm oh, like, yeah. Oh, yeah. You never heard those filthy, lazy hocus pocuses? <laughs> <laughs> like, no, it's like, Al- you never heard Alicadabra, Alakazam or yeah. whatever? Yeah. Abracadabra. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. and remember, you still have that required listening from me from last episode. Everyone must listen to the song Hocus Pocus by the band Focus. Or you're not allowed to listen to the Hocus Pocus episode. (laughs) I still haven't listened to it. I better. I want to tape it. It's got dynamite yodeling in it for a rock song. (laughs) That's all I'm going to (laughs) say. It might be the only one, but that's great. (laughs) But yeah, so we're really looking forward to that. Thank you all for hanging out for Bluebeard. And uh, hey, if this isn't nice. What is, motherfuckers? Yodel, 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 yodel. This has been an Earwolf production. Executive produced by Scott Ackerman, Chris Bannon, and Colin Anderson. For more information and content, visit Earwolf.com. Earwolf.